Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. Hey, what's up? I'm Adam Dubin, director of Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, and you are listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. And I'm Paul Moat. Hey, our special guest. Hey, hey. Now, if we have Paul on as often as we have been lately, do we, are you still a special guest? I would like to think I'm special. <laughs> I mean, I think at this point, uh, even if you were on every other week, the, the people would be very excited. You're, you're, you're the people's co-host. I'll take it. We're here at HQ3, the smokestack, and I will say... It is another beautiful Aloha Monday. <laughs> Aloha Monday. We are all wearing our Metallica Hawaiian shirts, and I feel like there's a there's a unique amount of power in the room Agreed. based on the clothing. Uh, I'd also like to point out that Paul went a step beyond and is wearing uh, the Hetfield outfit when he slams the door that will not slam with some overalls and a white tank top. Yep. Went out and got all those tattoos also, uh, yeah, just, just for the for bit. The they even pulled <laughs> yeah. up in a 56 Chevy. It's amazing. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are an All Metallica podcast. We get together every week, despite being on tour or being in quarantine and lockdown these days, to talk about our favorite metal band, The Mighty Metallica. This week, we are going to be watching and talking about Murder in the Front Row. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be an exciting couple of weeks, because what we have next week is we are talking to the director of Murder in the Front Row, Adam Dubin who we also may recognize from a year and a half in the life documentary mm-hmm. that, you know, I told him in an email this week, I was like, dude, that documentary is just every bit of part of the fabric of my aesthetic and my head of Metallica as like the black album or binge and purge. Yeah, of course. It's just can't even divorce those images from that time in the band. Um, he also did freeze them all. He did the hit the lights, the making of through the never. And then he also rec- uh, did the music videos for a couple of bands that we know and love one being, the Beastie Boys, Beastie No Boys. Sleep Till Brooklyn, and Fight Your Right to Party. So I'm excited to dive into this documentary. I haven't seen it. I want to thank Chris Yurgis, Metalliclaws, for sending it to me. None of us have seen this, right? Nope, I haven't seen it. So we're going to be burning it down together, and hopefully you have it at home. You can watch it with us. Uh, you can get it wherever you buy DVDs. Just go to your local Blockbuster, honey. They'll have <laughs> it right there. What was the name of y'all's local video home rental store? Admit One Video. Admit One. That was in Orange County. Uh, Admit One Video. Paul? Video Library. Video Library. Very quaint title. Yep. I can't even remember what. We had a Blockbuster that we went to for sure. That one that I was thinking of was uh, before Blockbuster really took off. This was like when my family first moved from LA County to Orange County. So I I remember like in fifth and sixth grade. And the best part was if they had a bitchin' poster of a movie I loved, uh, if nobody claimed it, excuse me. Uh, they would put my name on the back of it. When they were done, they would yes. they would call my house and say, hey, the poster's ready for you. I used to do that at Coconuts for albums. Yeah, I did that at Tower. Yeah. I got the uh, giant Black Crows, you know, like the the cartoon crows mm-hmm. yeah. for the By Your Side record. It was like 12 feet tall. What'd awesome. you do with it? Just put it in your room? Uh, in our 
it, I lived in an apartment with four other guys. And it was like <laughs> this was a couple of weeks ago this, on, the, on yeah. the ceiling. <laughs> this was the centerpiece of our living room. Well, we're going to watch it together with all of our normal shenanigans and commentary. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, it's just an introduction to the the Bay Area thrash scene in San Francisco. So. Yeah. It's the melding of of what would become this thrash genre that everyone loves, that Metallica would spring forth from. That's right. I don't want to talk too much about details, lest the metal police show up. Uh-oh. <laughs> but here's what the deal. We're all going to learn a lot about it and uh, hopefully avoid the metal police in the future because of what we're going to learn in the documentary, right? There you go. That's right. Uh, a few things in the news. Actually, just one thing. So Lars did an interview this week where he, he described his least favorite Metallica song. And I was surprised to see that it's Eye of the Beholder. I was very surprised to see that as yeah. well. Which is a song I think's real cool. I saw it, I think, through YouTube today real quick. And my first thought, just seeing like the title, was like, oh, what's this clickbait crap? But it was actually really yeah. surreal. Well, here, here's his quote about it. He says, whenever I hear the song, it sounds really forced. It sounds like you put a square peg in a round hole. It sounds like it's got two different tempos. There's kind of a 4-4 feel in the intro and on the verses. Then I think the choruses are in a waltz tempo. It literally sounds like two different worlds rubbing up against each other sounds very awkward to me i'm not a huge fan of that song wow. i love that the time signature changes goes from straight to swung yeah. i love that about that song it's interesting to think about them doing that and not even really knowing what was happening yeah they don't mm -hmm. seem like the type of dudes in the studio who are like well then we'll go to a six eight right it's not rush let's do some exactly. let's do some swinging baby but you know any song on saint anger might have been on you know he likes purify more than this song he likes sweet amber more than this song yeah well, I mean, two different worlds rubbing up against each other. Two worlds that is, rubbing uh, against each other. <laughs> that is, you know, that's Saint that Anger whole era. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know that bummed a lot of people out, and uh, I tweeted at Lars today. I said, "Come on, man." I mean, it's not that big deal. At the end of the day, it's like it. When I read it, it didn't sound to me like he was making as definitive a statement as the title no, was. It was kind right. of clickbaity a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And then he kind of went on to say, he's like, I don't really listen to Metallica, which I totally get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got to be, be weird. weird if he did drive around listening to the Black Album. There is a guy that we all know, and I'll just say his name because he wouldn't mind. Charlie Mars. <laughs> I don't know him. Okay. He's a, he's a singer-songwriter from Oxford, Mississippi, and he's a character. I met him on tour in 2009. He was opening for a Griffin House club tour. We were, I was in the band with Griffin House. And he was opening, and we were using his van. And we were all drinking like fish and he was sober yeah so he drove the van the whole time so uh, often on a day on a long drive six hour drive to sound check we'd all be crashed out on the benches you know in the back yeah. with our headphones in and stuff and almost anytime i pulled my earbuds out charlie was in the front driving blasting his own record <laughs> <laughs> that had just come out uh, and i would i would like peek up and look in, and see his face in the rear view and he was like jamming to it that's funny and i remember saying like wow man you're really listening to your own record a lot. And he I'm not, I'll never forget it. He looked at me through the rear view all the way in the back of the van. And he goes, I'm just waiting for something better to come out. <laughs> wow. And I kind of appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. He, sure. he liked the shit he was doing. Yeah. I mean, I've done that when, you know, after me and Paul made Let It Burn right here in HQ3. I mean, there was a few weeks where I listened to it almost every day because it was this, a sense of uh, pride in the record, what we accomplished and what we made. And just, you know, listening to it over and over again just to kind of hear things we did like you know after you make a record for a few weeks you might forget about little little you know kibbles and bits you put in there yeah and uh yeah but after that it kind of tapers off how often do you listen to records that you've made paul well the moment i'm done once we've started the record 
The last little process for me is intense listening to figure out what's wrong, you know, like when I'm mixing. And so by the, the end of that cycle, I literally don't want to ever hear it again. Right. Right. So I might revisit it like years later. Like sometimes it's fun. I was just telling you this time of year always reminds me of this one artist named Matthew Mayfield that I've worked with a lot because we usually have cut his records sometime in the late fall, early winter. And, uh, and so sometimes like that will, will come around and it'll be like, man, I'm going to put that record on and listen to it. And that'll be once every three or four years. Just sobbing in your car, eating 10 cheeseburgers. So so I've, I've, you're saying I've got another year or two before you revisit my record. Yeah. Definitely not ready for that. But, but in summertime though, cause it's, you know. That kind of record. Absolutely. Well, let's get through the rest of this housekeeping and watch this documentary. Uh, if you like the show, leave a review on iTunes. That's all we'll say about that. We have a Patreon. You'll hear a commercial for it. We did get a new patron, George Lagos. All right. Yeah. A fucking mm. he- a hero comes along. <laughs> a fucking find of- What is the next lyric? You, you know it, don't you, Ethan? I definitely know. Okay. <laughs> With the strength to carry through, maybe? Sure. Carry on. Hey, I, I want to say That's something it. about your uh, your ad for the, the Patreon. Yeah. Two cups of coffee, mm-hmm. five bucks. Yeah, in what year? <laughs> Eighty-six. How much? You, is go, it? you go to Starbucks right now and you get. Well, I guess if you get just like black drip, yeah, coffee. just a drip of drip coffee. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But All that's right. still like a that's still a that's hey, a tall. Hey, you tell you what, we don't do it fancy here when it comes to coffee. That's we right. don't do it fancy here. We're talking about two cups of Folgers here. <laughs> the Paul Stanley Folgers. That's right. Hey, man, I've been drinking Hotel and Pilot gas station coffee for like 15 years, man. I can't I, even appreciate the nice stuff. I got a $25 gift certificate to uh, Starbucks last Christmas. And you spent it on a, on a, on a fucking Michael Buble CD. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you? No, I just remember I felt, I felt like I got two coffees and then they're like, uh, sir, there's only 93 cents left on this. I don't, I don't shop at Starbucks. Yeah. Is it pretty expensive over there? I don't know. I only did it because I had the it gift dep- certificate. It depends on what you get. I mean, if you go in there and you get a drip coffee, it's going to be like three bucks or whatever. Well, two cups. I should know this. My wife works for Starbucks. I should say, I should say two cups of shitty coffee. There you go. We'll recut the whole commercial just Please. to update that. Yeah, uh, you can follow us on the socials: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know, so who gives a fuck? <laughs> the best way to get a hold of us, and we love hearing from you guys, is metal up your podcast show at gmail.com. We're gonna dip in right now to some emails and uh, and what we lovingly refer to as the email portal. Would you like to start us off today? You know, Clint, I would love to. Aloha, figured, by the way. I figured we would do something a little different today, and you would start off the emails. <laughs> you know what? I mean, we're we're pushing the end of our fourth year. Let's get crazy. It's Aloha Monday. Okay. Let's get crazy. All right. First email from Brad K. Says, hey, guys. Hope all is well. Been listening to the old school episodes, and I'm now on the Cliff Burton podcast. Uh, very cool. Brings back a lot of memories of the 80s. When Metallica hits the road again on an upcoming tour, you guys must do a podcast from Las Vegas. The fan turnout from all over the world in Las Vegas is insane. Look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Cheers, Brad K. Yeah, that's a that's a big stop for people. It is. And I can guarantee you this. If we ever record an episode in Las Vegas, I'll be wearing this Hawaiian shirt. Oh, I don't think I'm going to take this shirt off for another several years. How about we, we cozy? How about we, nice. we wear these in protest until Metallica does another live show? <laughs> you got it. Done. No problem. I would have done it anyway. Easy. Do you think in the wintertime we should switch to fill sweaters, though? underneath these oh, okay. <laughs> i mean here's the stage of marriage that i'm at 
My wife, when I put this on, my wife was like, oh my God, I don't like it. And I'm like, well, I'm wearing it every day now. <laughs> yep. Oh, you don't like the Michael Jordan jerseys? I'll be wearing them every day. The more you don't like them, the more I'm going to wear them. That's, That's funny because I put, I put these overalls and this white beater on and uh, Talitha was like, what are you doing? And I was like, it's for the podcast. James dressed like this, blah, 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 blah. And uh, we were out on the front porch right before I came over here and she gave me a kiss and I was like, hey, just so you know, better be getting used to this. <laughs> <laughs> and she literally shut the front door and locked it. <laughs> She's having the locks changed right now. <laughs> Thank you, Brad, for the email. Jay Middleton writes in and says, what's up, brothers? Nice. Thank you. The amount of content Metallica has given us during the pandemic has been amazing. All the Metallica Mondays are great, and I feel grateful to watch them. Hands down, each show sounded great and had awesome footage. My question for you two, is there a time period of the band you wish they had a Metallica Monday for? For me, I wish they had a Ride the Lightning Cycle show on there. It's my favorite album and also an interesting time for the band. Going from the thrash brotherhood anthems of Kill 'Em All to the more epic and intense writing of Ride the Lightning. He says, hopefully the metal police don't come out to me for saying that. Anyways, thank you for all you do. You guys put a ton of love and effort into the show and provide amazing content. Proud to be a patron. and can't wait for my Rome guy shirt. Much love. Jay Middleton, Seattle, Washington, New Jersey. New Jersey. Rome guy. The Rome guy shirts have made it out into the wild. Do their hip. People are already donning them. Wow. So when I've been emailing Adam Dubin... You know, one of the one of the primary reasons I emailed him other than to get the interview, which again is coming up next week, is I was like, can you help me find that guy? Yeah. Because yeah. our, our fans really want to hear from this guy. They, they want to know. And uh, I thought maybe he signed a release form or there was some dig through some paperwork. And he, did, he, did, he doesn't have a way to hunt him down from his end. He didn't get anything signed. But he did say that that was a beloved character at the time that they were making a year and a half in the life. And uh, he was stoked about the shirts and he requested some. Nice. Awesome. So the fact that the director of that film will be wearing a Rome guy shirt here soon just brings joy to my life. We need to get a, <clears throat> uh, a Rome, uh, campaign going to uh, find Rome guy. How would you even go about finding Rome? You guy? just start with a hashtag. I, I know how we could do it. I know how we could do it. You know, you know that to catch a predator guy, <laughs> Chris Hansen. Let's get. I mean, I'm not him? saying Rome guy's a predator at all, right. but uh, that Chris Hansen guy. He has a good way of, of he he tracks people down. He finds yeah. people. So maybe we get a hold of Chris. Is it Chris Jansen? Chris Hansen? Chris Hansen, I think. Why don't, you, why don't you sit down over there? Just have yeah. a seat over there. <laughs> uh, I just bring in some pizza. It's like pizza when you there. have a seat over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you show up with a six pack of beer because you're meeting a 10 year old. Okay. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh. All right. Next email. I believe uh, Paul's going to read the next yep. email. Steve B. writes, Clint and Ethan, I just became a Patreon. Keep up all the good work and laughs. I hope one day I get to meet you guys and shoot the shit about the music and such. The two of you make Metallica fans grow bigger and stronger with this podcast, and I personally am glad I found it. Thanks again for everything you do, and stay, stay safe down there. Wish you guys all the best, and hopefully the two of you can travel and play music soon. Nice. Your bud from the north, Steve Balaz, Balaz, yeah, from Ontario, Canada, New Jersey. What a nice email, Steve. Thank you, Steve. So kind. Next email is from one of our favorite listeners, Namarta. She says, "Good morning, gentlemen. Well, it's, it's the evening, of course, but when the email was sent, we all know this. Everyone knows this. Uh, thanks for the early upload of the Cliff Mall commentary episode. My bad. <laughs> We've done that a few times. I scheduled it at midnight the night before an accident. Um, listening to it on my walk as I write this email." 
Uh, I just think it's so amazing to think about how much impact Metallica's shortest running bass player has for the Met fam. For instance, in my late 20s, I've been a fan since I was 10. My first Met concert was in 2018, and yet my only Metallica tattoo is Bass Solo Take One, abbreviated to BST1, which is a pretty cool tattoo. Wow. Uh, and she said how to throw the abbreve in there. You got to put the abbreve <laughs> in there. You have to. Some, you got to put the abbreve in there when you get a tap. Um, <laughs> Totes. <laughs> but to think I was touched enough by a bass solo on their first album, may I say they're a groundbreaking first album, to tattoo my own body, who does that? <laughs> touched, hey, touched enough. Do we need to get Chris Hansen on the phone? Chris Hansen. Is he, is he on speed dial? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to Marta. Um, thank you guys for putting uh, all the uh, sentiment and emotions we fans feel into words through these episodes. P.S. Love the Rome Guy shirt. And thanks again for the So What magazines. Much love, Namarta. Namarta's been collecting like back issues of So What. And she awesome. was she was missing like she's missing like 20 of them. And we have a whole stack at HQ2 that some other very generous listener sent us for a giveaway. And uh, I was like, hey, Namarta, send me the ones that you that you don't have. And let me see. And I ended up having like nine of them. Awesome. No way. Yeah. So just so anyway, what? just making making so what dreams come true. No big deal. NBD. Uh Ali Koch <laughs> says, What's up, brothers? I get to do two of those. Hell yeah. I was challenged by a friend to do 25 push-ups every day to raise awareness for PTSD, anxiety, and depression that's driving people to committing suicide. I lost my closest friend to suicide in my high school days and more in the years that followed. As I'm sure you guys know, many people are dealing with these monsters and need help and support. So I accepted the challenge in a heartbeat. I've been rocking to Metallica while running, and I thought to myself, Metallica has a wealth of great songs for other types of workouts, such as doing push-ups. Inspired by the Mel Up Your Podcast intro, I created a playlist, 25 songs from 14 albums spanning 37 years of music, which he sent a link to it, and I ran to it today. Oh, nice. Really? Nice. And had a good time. Awesome. Just screaming and fist bumping. Hell yeah. Head banging on the just trying to like, on the elliptical in my studio. Trying to start a pit with other runners around you. Just trying to scare <laughs> my kid. Uh, he says, also, everyone I nominated to the challenge helped me donate more to the JED Foundation, which is J-E-D. JED exists to protect emotional health and prevent suicide for our nation's teens and young adults. Thought to share the story with you guys, especially as I'm sure it pleases Clint to see that the playlist is loaded with load and reload songs. Two amazing, underappreciated albums. Damn it, Metal Police again. <laughs> Cheers to you both, Ollie. Well, very cool, everyone. That's awesome. Uh, go check out the the Jed Foundation. Great cause, <clears throat> Ollie. You're a sweetheart for doing that, and that's rad. Thank you for passing that along. It's Heck really yeah. cool. And I might I add, uh, I think at this point, if the Metal Police show up for a Load and Reload record or reference or whatever, fake police. Oh well, nice. here's a little thing I got for the Metal Police who show up for the Load and Reload records. A little thing called Citizens Arrest. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> I like that. Uh, it reads the playlist is loaded with load and reload. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Can we take this opportunity just to remind? We need to remind our listeners in case they forgot about a little thing uh, called, called unload. Called unload. Which I think we titled an, an episode when we did that with Paul, didn't we? Where we uh we we made our our our, we, our part it was the three. best of both. But but, but the origin story is amazing because we were all texting one night and Paul in a fit of excitement, legitimately accidentally referred to it as unload. Yes. <laughs> and I don't think we lived that down for a while. I had to change the data <laughs> subscription on my cell phone plan to accommodate how much you guys were texting me about it. We were just like naming a bunch of Metallica songs and getting them a little wrong. Yeah. Man, that was a fun night. All oh, right. So good. Uh, one more email and then yep. we're out of here. Aaron. Hey, Clint and Ethan once again and not Paul. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know you're going to be here. 
I went to my local record store the other day and found a green version of Ride the Lightning. Obviously, I got really excited and bought it immediately. When I got home, I went online to do a little bit of research because it says Burnett Records and Made in France. And some people were saying it's unfortunately a bootleg version of the record. I wanted to show you guys in case you knew anything about it, but I found it super interesting that this even exists. The vinyl itself is also a clear orange color. Super random. Love the podcast more and more every week. Keep up the great work and stay safe, guys. Aaron from South Carolina, New Jolly Z. I think that's awesome. I think that the the legitimate misprinted green lightning was in France. It was, yeah, but, but there's bootlegs out But there. this is a bootleg for sure. I yeah. would still buy the bootleg. It just looks rad. How much are those green Ride the Lightning? I like think the original ones. I think they're like 500 bucks. They wow. go for a lot because there wasn't a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I've got like six, but. So what's the deal with that? They just, was it running out of ink or the wrong? They just got it wrong. They really? got, they got, however they do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've probably been a part of sending artwork out for those kinds of things. I've done it a little bit, but, or I've worked with art directors. I don't know what they all have to send. Right. I think they send a CMYK instead of RGB. <laughs> it probably was a code. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, this is, this is obviously pre, you know, Photoshop and stuff, but, uh, yeah, I mean, misprint and obviously different color, but I mean, even if I found a bootleg and it was like twenty bucks or twenty five bucks or something, yeah, I'd pick it up. I think it's yeah. sick. I love it. Yeah, it's I cool love that the it's green. Orange too. Well, that'll do it for the email portal. I had a good time. We checked in with the family, and uh, and now we're gonna we're gonna get out and uh, are we gonna do the thing? We'll do the thing. Let's leave <laughs> the email portal. Mommy. You're really good at that. Hey everyone, this is Ethan and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon. That's right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon. For $5 a month, or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all. In addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free downloads of every cover our world black and ep ticket giveaways for shows like snm2 and slaying castle box sets rare vinyl metallica memorabilia like snm2 guitar picks email priority meaning we'll read your email first on the show the chance to ask guests like hailstorm jay weinberg of slipknot and metallica row crew your very own questions and the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our metal tales bonus episodes in which you can tell us all about any Metallica show you've been to in the past. All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal Up Your Podcast. We couldn't do this show without you, and to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you. Peace. Adios. Okay, so I have a few words here just to get us started. Uh, Murder in the Front Row, the San Francisco Bay Area Thrash Story, directed by Adam Dubin. Uh, music videos for Fight for Your Right to Party, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, Roommates with Rick Rubin, directed A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, The Nothing Else Matters video, and the Freeze Em All uh, video. No big deal. Loosely based on a 2012 photo journal by Harold Oimon and Brian Liu, who are like super legit Bay Area sort of historian type. These were just kids that were there in the fucking thick of it 
taking photos. Thrashtorians. Wow. So the book is dope. I mean, the book is a bunch of crazy pictures of like literally in the front row of this stuff. Yeah. Adam Dubin says of the film, it's not just a film about heavy metal. It's about people. It's hard music with a warm, fuzzy, beating heart. That's what I came here for. Which is, that's exactly what I signed up for. I mean, I already feel so good in this Hawaiian shirt, but to have that on top of it, a warm, fuzzy, beating heart feeling, I'm in. Yeah. I heard that that was Slayer's alternate title for their first record. <laughs> it, yeah. they were gonna call, it was either going to be called God Hates Us All or Hard Music with Warm, Fuzzy, Beating Heart. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, they went with God Hates Us All. Seasons in the Abyss or... <laughs> I think the, yeah, it was uh, the, I think cattle decapitation. That was they were either going to call their band cattle decapitation or uh, warm fuzzy beating heart. So we're going to fire this film up and uh, we're going to jump in. I I don't know what to expect except for some kick ass history about the Bay Area thrash scene. I'm excited. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Bonded by Blood LLC. Early 1980s. Twelve million people are unemployed in our country. 1.3 million of them in California. More than Strangely prescient. Right here in the Bay Area. Like this self-styled Reagan bill near the railroad tracks in Berkeley. Those are the conditions for uh, tough times and real struggle. I regret to say that we're in the worst economic mess since the Great Depression. Here we here were the children of the American Bop Night, Jack Kerouac on the road. This is one of my favorite thrash songs, by the way. I think this is on next to this is second album. Located on the western edge of the continental United States, has a long history of supporting new music and free expression. I didn't know Lars was going to be narrating. I know. As experimentation to beat poetry to rock and roll. By 1980, with the American economy in recession, a new group of teenagers came of age. Is that Rome guy? It kind of sounds that like It looks him. like four Cliff Burtons. Something heavier. Something that mirrored their own lives and not the previous generations. From faraway Europe, Bruce. metal sounds were slowly rippling westward, carried by word of mouth, a few rare imported records, some bootleg cassette tapes and music magazines. Wow, not a great picture of Rob. California was too <laughs> totally. far away for most of these bands to tour here. So the young music fans of the Bay Area did what we do best. We didn't wait for the music we wanted. We created our own. Hell yeah. There's Kirky Poo. Right, I just want to say one thing first. Posers must die! <laughs> not our minds, we were kind of crazy. We were just kids. Kids run amok. Scary hole. It was scary and it was dark. It's this outlet for angst. I'm Alex Skolnick, born and raised in Berkeley, California. Hey, I'm James Hetfield from Metallica. This is the music. We know, buddy. Gary Holt, David Ellison, basis for Megadeth. Hell yeah, David Ellison. Say my name. Everybody watching this knows who I am. Wow. <laughs> nice. For chicks and beer. And I didn't drink. My name's Chuck Billy. Grew up in Dublin, California. And the pits were violent as hell. Mark Gossigator from the San Francisco Bay Area. Phil Demmel from Dublin, California. The volume, the craziness was epic. Wow. We got to do more of this. Rob Flynn, Oakland, California. Rob Flynn, man. I play guitar for Exodus. People have a passion for the metal. There's no distinction between the bands and the fans. We called it the land of misfit toys. People in our scene, we felt invincible. It was about survival. It was like, ah! Exodus have the destruction. I already see some pictures of uh, Ruthie's. We were there. Yeah. Kurt came up with a name and we were just like, wow. What was the question again? My name is Lars Ulrich and I'm from Denmark. <laughs> I'm a Slayer. Singer and bass player for Slayer. So I got goosebumps talking about it right now, and my name is Paul Bostaff. Paul Bostaff. El Sobrani, California. 
Charlie Benante. Hey. There you go. Yeah. Bronx, New York. Dave Lombardo. Southeast. Dave Atlanta. Lombardo. Hell yeah. There's an aura of watching history happen. There he is. They played before us, and that was kind of a mistake. I am Robert Trujillo. I'm from Santa Monica, California. There goes that guy. I love Rob. No, no. What's he up to? It wasn't as exciting as you thought it would be. I would describe him as a warm, fuzzy, beating He heart. is a warm, fuzzy, beating Yeah, heart. he is. Murder in the front row. All right, here we go. That font was great, by the way. Great font. Far away from great the city. Like, really good font. It made me feel fuzzy. There was nothing to do. All we had was music, you know? It was a pilgrimage, you know? We would mow a few lawns, save a few bucks. Take it's kind of like when you mow a lawn. <laughs> save a few <laughs> bucks. Station, take Bart to Berkeley and walk up to Telegraph. I instantly went to all the hard rock stuff, you know, Aerosmith, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Thin Lizzy. Anything and everything that was around that had an edge, that was loud and energetic, I just went to. Kirk was the first guy to ever play me like Uli Roth era Scorpions. And that was the first day we ever hung out. Look at how young Kirk looks. We met his house to see Ted Nugent and the Scorpions. But there was other stuff coming out of England and Germany that nobody really was partial to on a large scale other than the kids that I knew. The kids of my age uh, were listening to... I really love when it shows someone's name at the bottom. It's the side of a cassette. I wasn't really interested in that. That's cool. We all went to the same records. Yeah, that is cool. I just noticed that, bro. something that I just wasn't getting enough of until I heard this one band called UFO. And they had the heaviness. Michael Shanker. They had the energy, they had the musicianship, they had a guitar player that was sent from heaven named Michael Schenker. Me and John Marshall became obsessed with UFO. Nice John Marshall shout out. Yeah. Metal Church. Have you seen the That Metal Show where Kirk and, and Michael uh, Schenker are yeah. on it? Yeah, it's pretty it's fun. awesome. They like jam for a minute. I miss that show, man. Yeah, yeah. it was a good one. I was hanging out up in Berkeley in April and May of 1980, and I was walking along Telegraph Avenue. You'd see him down on Telegraph in Berkeley all the time. As I was walking, I heard a Motorhead song. You could hear him coming from like a block or two away, you know? Total character. There was I love these cartoons. Yeah, the animation's great. dope. Denim vest on, long hair, big Thin Lizzy Chinatown patch on his back, and he was playing Motorhead on his boombox. <laughs> you know, on his shoulder. His name was, was back Ethan. In the day when you'd carry <laughs> yeah, totally. It needed like D cells, like ten of them. <laughs> yeah, boombox. We were just talking about. Mine takes nine, but blasting Motorhead, and that was. Can you imagine Lars is walking around San Francisco so bla- like with a fucking boombox? <laughs> and the tennis racket in the other hand. Yeah, totally. It seems like somebody we should know. Or this is the dude that had the boombox. Got invited to right? hang out with some of his crew, and ended up in a place oh. in the Golden Gate Park called Strawberry Hill, where I met Ron Quintana. Ian Callen. It was the beginning of getting to know that crew of people that were all the Iron Maiden, Motorhead, Saxon, Diamond Head, Merciful Fate fanatics. My 1980 music sucked. 1979 sucked worse. Being a kid in San Francisco, radio was going downhill disco, and so radio stations were really bad. And luckily, there was KUSF, which could play harder punk stuff. So that's where you'd first hear UFO maybe once in a while. And at high school, I ran into a friend, and he said, you got to go to this store called The Record Vault. It's amazing. Got on the bus, I headed up, walked in, and it was like walking into Mecca. 
It was dark. It was cool. There was motorhead. A playing, guy would choke you. And all over the walls was <laughs> Lemmy's there. That I was into. <laughs> Lemmy lived there. You'd find all this great imported metal, you know, Budgie and Venom and Diamond Head and Sweet Savage demos. All this stuff that we really loved that you weren't going to find at like you know Tower Records. Back then, you'd be hanging out in the record store for two, three hours. You only have twenty bucks in your pocket, so you're trying to figure out which two records to buy. You know, it took a while. Yep. It was the wow. two, two records. Two records for twenty bucks. Things. It was the place Those everybody the days. came to buy their new release to get their copy of Metal Mania, Ardshock, Kerrang, whatever. And it was awesome. Ardshock. Amazing experiences to go there and, and see all these like-minded people that were there too. Well, I brought Flynn. The same stuff. You ever get in a machine head? And vests and backpacks mm, and kind of. Metal and I like all this underground stuff. Oh, Bush? The stores yeah. Have the albums. Yes. Oh, yeah, 16 Stone. Oh, yeah, great record. See the cover. Love Glycerine. And there was the first Iron Maiden album cover with Eddie on it. Look at that, dude. Killer. Look at that. Iconic. Down in uh, Southern California, my place was called Middle Earth, Middle Earth Records. And, you know, Middle Earth, please. (laughs) It pleases me to bring you to Middle Earth Records. I played Dungeons and Dragons there on a fortnight. You can get there through the email portal. And we were just, we just dove head first into it. I gravitated towards these metal bands because they were an escape. You listen to an Iron Maiden song and they're talking about a fantasy. It was no different in my I've never killed a woman before. Yes, there but were I know murders. how it yes, feels. There were satanic things. It was fantasy. It didn't make me want to go out and slaughter babies or anything. It was an escape. <laughs> That's Cannibal Corpse. It's like when you... <laughs> this is a, just a drawing of Eddie. Uh, I was a huge Iron Maiden fan and wow. obviously I should have been paying more attention in geometry. I got a 27 out of 52. <laughs> <laughs> the compact cassette tape came I like that. 1970s. Inexpensive and easy to record. No life to leather. Yep. adopted it as a means of spreading the newest sounds. In the pages of Krang, they would have pen pellets. That's Billy Gibbons. Krang would run them yeah. free. That's what started everything. That's how I heard about Brian Liu, KJ Downton. KJ had a ton of Maiden, and so did Brian. So that was cool. That was another big staple of the movement. Everyone had their demo and bootleg list, and they asked for the other person's list and trade tapes. Wow. Back then, it was snail mail and tapes and stamps and handwritten letters. All of a sudden, I was getting letters from people in Germany, Holland, France. Do you have seen those lifestyles in Lazarus? It just <laughs> opened up this whole worldview. I had been now trading with so many people, getting tapes and uh, fanzines. Kind of sounds like an analog Napster, Lars. Uh oh. Yeah. Six pages. And then I realized, well, I wanted to do a fanzine, and then I, I started. I mean, he was deep into the tra- July, tape trading scene too. And I know. it became Metal Mania by August of 1981. But the quality wasn't the same. It was degenerative quality, please. I mean, it was the thing to do. It was part of the conversation back then in the early 80s. The thing that maybe has become the misconception over the years about the tape trading network is we weren't dubbing albums. We were dubbing live bootlegs. You know, at that time. Part of being a music fan then is you wanted to own the record. You wanted to own the seven-inch single because it made you feel part of something bigger. Mm. In high school, they had a guitar class, and it was literally 30 people learning how to play guitar. And in that class was Mark Biederman, who was eventually in Blind Illusion, and Kirk. Before Gary (laughs) was in the band, you know, when it was just Kirk and them, they they sometimes rehearsed at our rehearsal space. He never left the crash uh, scene. Class together, guitar class. <laughs> he's still he's teaching the class now. Just mostly just like learning our instruments, 
And, you know, Kirk turned me on to so many different kinds of music. Like, I had never heard UFO or the Scorpions. All we had was music, you know? And then when we got into the music, all we had were each other. And, you know, we wanted to take it to the next level, so we got instruments. And I think that the anger of being in a place that just didn't have that enough sweet to offer, shirt. you know, the frustration of being bored. I half think half Kirk, half Zebra. Yeah. Our instruments. Yeah, I do love the, the cassette tape. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a nice little touch. Heavy metal was beginning to rise. In December of 1980, a friend of mine and I, who were the only two people, by the Brian way, who knew anything yeah. about the new wave of British heavy metal, went to see Michael Shanker group play at a place called the Country Club in Reseda. And this is where they met Lars, John, I think. He was in the parking lot, and he saw some kid wearing a Saxon European t-shirt. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1980, nobody knew who Saxon was in L.A., let alone had a European t-shirt. And that, of course, was a kid named Lars Ulrich. Fast forward to when James and wow. I was now wearing one thing led to another. Gucci started. No, it's like freaking uh, a year and a half or so later. But I got the idea to do the compilation album. Lars called me up one day and said, uh, "If I put together a band, can I be on your album?" I'm like, "Of course, absolutely." So he's like Lars wearing Tom Cruise's Top Gun jacket. Yeah. Doing a magazine. We need a store, man. Let's just start a club and hang out. And Laws, in his way, you know, he was like, "Oh, that's cool. That's a good idea, man." And he showed me a list of his future band or club names, and so he had like generic, hot roddy, American car names: Thunderbolt. <laughs> Metal Mania, Metallica, I had a huge list of names. That ended up being some band that starts with an M, I think it was Metallica, that we misspelled on the very first <laughs> version of the record. Wow. Lars I love that. always was able to make things happen. Somehow he landed them a gig opening for Saxon. James didn't play guitar, he just sang. That's wild, he yeah. didn't play guitar. Their set consisted of Hit the Lights, Blitzkrieg by Blitzkrieg and about five diamond head covers, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> the selection of the cover songs we did, I Here think, we go. was a little Your bit favorite. more uh, involved because we all yeah, kind of nice story. what bands we liked. Metal Mania 5 came out right after Metallica played their very first shows ever. So Lars helped write an article about his show and this great new band, Metallica. He wrote this little article uh, about L.A. heavy metal and Young Metal Attack Metallica. And this is the very first article ever uh, of Metallica. And of course, it was written by Lars. <laughs> <laughs> they never really so cool. fit in Amazing. with the LA crowd. We got gigs when we could, as many as we could. And, you know, we got kicked out of a few clubs because they thought we were a punk rock band. With mm. Brian Slagle's help, we're able to go up to San Francisco area with a few other LA bands. Man, it was on. I like all the little cuts like this. It's, it's rad, great. man. The production the, the, on this is great. Yeah, the pacing is awesome. And they saw the energy that was involved, and they just wanted to be in that element. That route that that animated van is taking would take so much longer than I-5. grow as a scene in San Francisco and the Bay Area as well. A lot of bands my, my wife's from the Bay Area. I know. I'm from Southern California. Yeah, that was some I, deep I California talk. I know that route. In the 70s the I and the early 80s, it had high unemployment. It's kind of like when you're coming up the five. When you come up the five and get into the Bay Area, my mom worked a lot, so like in the daytime, I had a lot of a lot of free time to myself to just jam out at home. We were ghetto kids, you know. We we stole shit. We, you know, like there's the time the wagon wheel liquor store in Pinole burned down, right? 
You know, most people stay away from like burnt out buildings, not Exodus. We crawled through the wreckage because there was dozens and dozens of bottles of alcohol in there. <laughs> I actually met Gary shoplifting when we were going to junior high school. <laughs> we had nothing given to us. We stole some of our first equipment. Gary was a friend of mine from From Richmond. Metallica. And <laughs> at the channel. Kind of like Pretty sure he put a D on the word stole. Like and then Kurt stole. gave him a guitar lesson and wow. Taught me how to play guitar. You know, I hold a pick the, the way I do it. I fret a bar chord the way I do it. We do it exactly the same because he showed me here's how you hold a pick. So wow. right, I hold That's a awesome. pick like that then. It was Kirk saying, yeah, I want to jam with people, finding guys that played and making it happen. It's weird to see John Marshall with short hair. Party, not yeah. Anyone. I have it embedded in my mind of all those old uh, videos with long hair. That was just like mushroom shaped. Super long. He was talking like this, and like you know, he was cracking like the Rome guy. It was pretty funny, you know. And he started talking about music. And he's like, "Oh yeah, Judas Priest, so heavy, so heavy. Oh Maiden, so heavy, so heavy." And I said to him, "Hey, bro, you know UFO?" He goes, "Rock bottom, rock bottom," and starts singing "Rock Bottom" to me. Seventeen and nature's queen. I looked at him and said, "You're gonna be the singer of our new band, Exodus." He's like. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I love how comfortable he is in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inseparable. His name was Pavel Nikolaevich Balakirshikov. It means son of Nicholas in Russian. He was a blue blood Russian. <laughs> he was a little tiny guy. Very aggressive, strong, thick, 100% Russian man. Paul was Paul. Take or leave it. And he had so much charisma and so much energy that you just wanted to be around him. <laughs> He couldn't sing that well, but <laughs> didn't matter. Good enough. That's where the lineup really came together. You know, it's when we found the band's voice. You know, Bailoff wasn't a singer when we met him. He was just a headbanger like us. When Exodus played, they just got the crowd completely insane. Ah, yeah, oh yeah, good old Exodus. They're in the studio tonight. Oh yeah, you know they're going to play tomorrow night at the Mab. It's going to be raging. You're raging too hard, pal. Tomorrow night, we're burning the place to the ground. Oh, that'll be fun to watch. <laughs> Neat shirt to have. Neat shirt to have, guys. Look at all those kids in that club, man. Dude, I love it. It's like a built-in audience. It was at the bygone era. in Alameda. Which was some little hall. There wasn't anything else to do. Joint yeah. kind of place, you know. And I remember, like, I knew he was the right guy for the job because it was one of those places that's got a stuff doesn't really exist anymore. High. And next thing you know, he's over on top of the table. I mean, maybe at the EDM like tent at the fucking. Fierce, maybe. No, not even that. Festival. I mean, everyone's awesome. on their He checked phone. everyone's yeah. attitude and made sure that if you're hanging out with them. That was still a thing when I was in high school, man. Nothing to do. Let's go. What shows are happening this weekend? Yeah, me too. An effing poke. Kids these days. Jeez. These fucking kids. Honey, please, Get off you guys have no, you have no idea how it used to be. Honey, we didn't even have a phone in our pockets. I was friends with a lot of people in San Francisco. There was a really great scene going on up there. So I was able to put together a Metal Masker show at the Stone in San Francisco, which was one of the I love that cover concerts. of the Metal Masker album. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be three bands. It's so from weird LA, and scary. And I called up Lars and said, hey, one of the bands dropped out. We have this gig up in San Francisco. You guys want to do it? Uh, we weren't one of the three bigger bands. We weren't even first on the agenda there, but we got invited when somebody canceled. So we hopped in Ron McGovney's pickup truck with our gear and tumbleweed run trailer in the back. There's some great photos. A lot of these photos are the photos from the book. 
Gotcha. So have you seen the book? People there. I know yeah. a lot of people claim to have been there. I was actually given this shirt by Look the original that. bass player, Ron McGubney. And that was the most amazing evening I ever saw, because in L.A., they were a bit outcast, nobody knew. And we went up to San Francisco, and that place went crazy. In September, what does Brian Slagle look like? He could be my age. Their first show in San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know. It looks great. Fountain of Youth. Immediate and explosive. My mom didn't let me go. Dave had this charisma that just took over the band. And when Metallica played, I thought he was going to be like the next superstar. I mean, because he was so crazy on stage and funny. Who the fuck is the front man? You or him? And I liked it because, you know, I got a big mouth. I like to talk. Huh. <laughs> really? Mm. Some of those people mm. that I had befriended for the previous year or two came and you felt there was like a scene, a sort of a collection of people that were really fans of the music which was a really different thing than what was happening in L.A. at the time. So it was a very uh, surreal, transformative experience for us. We are all teenagers. They were in a band on stage. We are teenagers in the crowd. And, you know, at the time, Metallica were doing Diamond Head covers. You know, one of those bands we didn't think anybody else knew about. And when they launched into The Prince, that's where the bond with that band and the Bay Area happened. If you know that band, you're a brother. That was the switch. Such yeah, great photos, man. Show. Yeah. Seeing fans that didn't care what they looked like. I mean, they had cut off denims and stuff. They, they, they didn't care. And they were at the front of the stage headbanging because the music did that for them. They weren't gathered around the bar scene or anything. They were there for the music. I think we had a much different relationship with our fans because, you know, we were salt of the earth. Metallica came up to the Bay Area to play the old Waldorf. Okay. Yeah. And I remember watching them. When do you think these interviews were done? Cool. And then the uh, probably came on and played for a year like and a half ago. Like 25 people. And that said a lot to me. It said a lot to Bailoff. It said a lot to everyone in Exodus. Or we're like, okay, all right, we know what's what's working here and we know what's not. Yeah, yeah, Kirk is crushing the interview. Yeah. He is, yeah. Demo. So shortly after that, the band I was playing with at the time, Laws Rocket. Laws Rocket. Show together. <laughs> they were playing before Laws Rocket. Are you and Laws Rocket? Something about Metallica. They had that special, that, that, still, that, that kick. And, you know, they got that extra boost of adrenaline that I think made everyone step up their game. Everyone. And then we played a show the next day, and it was a benefit for... Metal Mania. Metallic. And it was kind of a hodgepodge thing that was put together in 24 hours. Metallic they Mayhem at the Mab. Fans. They had got Metallica. They asked us to open. We said, sure, we'll open the show. This is at the Mubuhe Gardens. We played our show. Then Metallica came on, and they played. And they were just fantastic. And that's when I first met James. So weird to hear Kirk talk about Metallica. Like talk about Metallica. Yeah, because you think of him as It was a Metallica. Things you know? to come in my future because as I was talking to Lars, he got undressed and changed right in front of me. And I was like, wow, why is this guy doing it? And then I realized, oh, this is what I guess what European people do. Little did he know oh, that was going to happen 10,000 times. Yeah, they're showering together after. Fucking black album tour. Metallica's legendary demo cassette, No Life to Leather, was recorded in the summer of 1982. It immediately became a staple of the tape trading underground and established the band as a force to be reckoned with. First, we did a four song demo called Power Metal, and then the infamous No Life to Leather tape came a couple months after. 
I just started sending it to all the same people wow. that I'd been trading some of this other underground metal stuff with, like the KJ Dalton's of the world. Oh my God, this tape is amazing. It just crushes. It's unbelievable. They've come so far. And I sent Brian the first Metallica. Ethan, is that your boombox? That's, That's my boombox, yeah. Got it. I loaned it to him for the documentary. I love all these people in these well, early Metallica could, shirts. I know. One of my coworkers had started to do a Monday night event called Metal Monday. And these bands I've seen her in something else. Thrash were presented, and it was clear this was a new direction. Attendance on a Tuesday morning in any of the high schools across the I love that striped shirt. Poor. There you go. I can attest to that, because a lot of us, we were still in high school. The Bay Area people were so loyal to their bands that if they didn't like the band, they would actually turn their backs on the on the band while they were playing. There was a band <laughs> called Hans Naughty. Hans, Hans Naughty. Naughty. <laughs> With a very much a Los Angeles sunset. Oh my gosh. They were on the bill I'm buying that tonight. There were fans that had, you know, patches of obviously their favorite bands on and whatnot, and they would show how much they liked the band or didn't like the band. We might have flipped them off a couple of times, and that got boring, so. They just quietly turned, and that was. <laughs> <laughs> I guess silent <laughs> protest. It got across that, hey, you're not a favorite band and we're waiting for this one, the one that's on my back patch. That's so cool. Cliff came to us. I feel bad for the one guy that was there to see Hans Naughty. <laughs> Jan and I said, yeah. Oh, there's Ray. Guitar and a cheap amplifier and started giving him lessons. And uh, from then on, you know, it was all Cliff. I knew about Cliff Burton from his previous band, Trauma because Bailoff knew about Trauma. Bailoff had seen Trauma and said, oh, you got to see this band. They have a killer bass player and a killer guitar player. He said to me one day, he goes, hey, let's, uh, you want to go to San Francisco, see a show? Jim at, Martin, hell yeah. At the Stone. What's going on? He goes, well, these, see this band, Metallica. Maybe a couple months later, I was talking to Lars. He said, do you know any good bass players out there? And I said, well, there's this band from San Francisco with this amazing bass player named Cliff Burton. I saw them at the Troubadour a while ago, coming down and playing again. You guys should come. So Lars was like, okay, cool. Show happens. Lars and James are there. And I don't know how far into the set, but it was pretty early. Maybe the second or third song, Lars goes to me, that, that's going to be our bass player. Wow, great footage. Cliff represented the Bay Area. He's tapping. Do that. He's doing harmonics. It's he so represented bitching. A, a, a freakness that I didn't know so much growing up in L.A. I went and saw Cliff play with Trauma at the Keystone Berkeley, and it was no secret that the band knew that Cliff was about to be poached from them. That's where Cliff belonged, was in Metallica. Cliff would be wow. talking to somebody on the phone and just talk, 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 and this went on for... Oh, golly, I, I swear a month. And so finally I said to Jan, who's Cliff talking to on the phone so much? And she said, well, there's a band from Los Angeles that wants him to, to uh, join them. And, uh, and Cliff had said, uh, no, I, uh, I'm not going to go down to L.A. I said, he said, I told him, if you guys want me to join your band, you come up to the Bay Area. And by golly, here they did. <laughs> then so one cool. Day, Gotta miss Ray. Bailoff called me up and said, that guy, Cliff Burton, bass player for Trauma, is in Metallica now. And I said, no fucking way. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of them all just calling each other, like yeah. the scene of it, you know? Yeah. And then I saw them at the Stone, you know, Cliff's first gig at the Stone. And it was, I was just like, 
March 5th, 83. It's a legendary place, too. Yeah. It's kind of like looking in the mirror. There's another band playing, like, kind of what we are, you know? Our own stamp on it. But, uh, you know, I remember, like, just hanging out and getting hammered that night, and we just all kind of said the same thing. It's like, kind of found a kindred spirit, you know? There was a lot of integrity in the metal scene in San Francisco. And, you know, besides going up on the hill by the park and just blasting whatever music we were loving, booze and music, you know? That was our collective. That's where we got to know each other and really feel like we had a family. Cliff was the one that brought us to the Bay Area. You want me in the band, you gotta come up here. On December 28th, 1982, Cliff Burton was invited to play in a small house in El Cerrito that would later come to be known as the Metallica Mansion. Part audition, part rehearsal, only a lucky few were there. No audio exists, but fortunately for history, Brian Liu brought his camera and photographed wow, the new band. Wow, that's that day. Look how young. At some point, Lars probably called me and said, Lars looks like he's like uh, Malcolm Young. Look at him. He looks yeah. like Malcolm Rich Young. Yeah. Was there. Ian Callen, who did Metal Mania with Ron, was there. It's also there cool seeing James in all that five. denim. You don't yeah. see James in denim that much. Right. Room in El Cerrito, and that was the living room where Metallica played with Cliff for the first time, and that was it. Dude, I've studied those pictures trying to just get a sense of what the room was like. Yeah. Like where everyone was standing. Because you can see a little, like the headstock of someone else. Right. In the living room. In the picture of like Mustaine. Destroy, and all of a sudden he's doing some stuff. It's like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. It sort of catapulted Metallica to. Kind of a bummer that uh, Ron McGovney's not in here. I know. Metallica moved from Los Angeles. I assume he'd be asked to do it. A very short window of time with Mustaine in the band and Cliff in the band when rehearsing and a few really great shows in the Bay Area. I can't see those two getting along. Yeah. That's one of the things I, I think you can so. tell when we play together. When the lights are off and the guitars are roaring, there's some respect. Just the whole area, being up there, getting Cliff on board, it felt like home. And then it came time for us to play the show at Stone. With Lars Rocket. Lars Rocket. Great show. The place was packed. And then Metallica came on. And it was the first time that I'd actually been able to watch the whole show. As I was watching them, I thought, these guys are fucking great. They'd be so much better with me. Uh-oh. <laughs> Fade to black. <laughs> it is really it is really cool to see how all these bands had a mutual respect for each other supported each other went to each other's shows yeah, yeah. so awesome they didn't have anything else to do East Coast that wanted to do something like this and we thought it was so cool that in the Bay Area there was this kind of club of these type of bands that were gigging around and just making music and I remember Exodus being one of the first bands besides Metallica that I thought Ooh, fucking great. I just started getting the tape out there. And then um, we started... Charlie Benante is still one of my... Probably my, my top you know, drummer of the big four. Ended up in the I'll always love his drumming. Around that More than time, Dave Lombardo? We were yeah. meeting with Johnny Z in New Jersey. Giving him demos. Johnny Z? We talked to that guy. Yeah, we certainly did. Come over. Johnny Z. I mean, you guys are kind of a big deal. With the the demo tape, NBD. Which was no life to leather. We were blown away. Metallica were always ahead of us and the other bands. You know, they were always six months to a year ahead of us. They came out with Kill Em All 
before any other band had their records out. I think Kill 'Em All really set the tone for what was going to come. In April Duh. 1983, Dave Mustaine was let go. What? And replaced by Kirk Hammett. Wait a second. In a weird Back to the Future type. With yeah, they erased the picture. Yeah. Kirk was definitely very musically gifted, and he was also very up for whatever was going on. Yeah. Kirk and I were at this party. He's like, hey, man, come here. Mark Whitaker just called me. They want me to audition for Metallica. You know, it was like a passing of the torch, you know, like Kurt giving me the keys to the family car, you know, and saying, here, it's yours now. Don't blow it up. <laughs> as far as the music was concerned, Exodus's music was similar as to what Metallica was doing already. I had the chops to be able to play all that stuff on Kill em All, no problem. That was the least of my work. That was footage from See, the uh, then I knew the Metro gig. That mm -hmm. Going to a band, there's a certain dynamic, and if your personality doesn't work within that that band dynamic, it just won't work. You won't go anywhere. Like Cliff and Dave Mustaine. Our New Jersey metal fans. Like Dave Mustaine and lots of people. That girl in an Anvil <laughs> shirt. Into their home, the Fun House. It's pretty amazing that the house got a nickname, which was the Fun House, because of all the things that we did down there. The place was all about fun. Because what did you do there? You got dirt bikes happening. Oh, yeah. You get dirt bikes happening. Yeah. I love this. That's your I place, be at that place. Yeah, that's your place. Quite a few places. Crank up some dirt bikes. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't have. They're they didn't have much to pick from. <laughs> they didn't have much to A do. house with no heat. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, they supplied us with the things we needed. <laughs> you know, everybody knew that we would have these crazy parties with the music going crazy. The sound system was, uh, I believe it was like a four-channel Ankyo. Slayer's first New Jersey show was at the Funhouse. Wow. Four-channel, yeah, whole rack system. Yeah, you know, we just didn't have the regular speakers. We had, I guess... I wonder if those guys were part of the Old Bridge uh, Militia Foundation. Yeah, how could you tell? I don't know, just a guess. Just a guess. This is pretty wild. Meanwhile, back in the East Bay, Exodus quickly took hold as the Bay Area's go-to heavy metal band. Ruthie's Inn became home to the burgeoning scene. Imagine hanging out at Ruthie's Inn. Yeah. yeah. Exodus for three when all bucks. this shit's going on. location out of this place. Let's open it back up, Ruthie's Inn. <laughs> Last time I was down here, it still had the marquee, and you could still see Ruthie's Inn on it. This place was as much the epicenter of the Bay Area thrash scene as CBGB's was to the New York punk scene. I mean, there were so many clubs prior to Ruthie's, but this is where the violence took off. <laughs> this is where murder in the front row really did take place. My father was Wes Robinson, born in Port Arthur, Texas, came out to the East Bay. Oh, they got Ruthie? It's going to be Ruthie? He grew up in a household that was full of music, and they were hardcore jazz aficionados, and they would sneak out late at night to go see Ella Fitzgerald or the classics, a lot of the greats that started his love of music. It wasn't so much that he had a club, but rather that he would foster relationships that allowed him to use, use different venues for performances. He was a promoter, you know, that was the beginning. She seems like a like sweetie pie. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the late, great Wes Robinson, you know, booked Exodus at the first ever show at Ruthie's, a blues club. His joy for something wow. always led his actions. Dude, look at that photo. Involved. Bitchin'. He never got involved with something just because he might be able to make some money at it. He saw something in it. I'm, I'm not sure what what he saw. Maybe he recognized from when he, yeah, when he was a music fan, being younger. Obviously, much different music, but I think he saw some of that same energy. So he really helped nurture the scene. 
there were you know we would have been one of these dudes we would have totally been these guys oh yeah Um, for sure you know there was if we'd have been there at that time yep there was a parking lot across from ruthie's that is still um the business is still there um big o tires people would throw up in there in that parking lot and like break bottles after a while i was like these people never complain they never call the cops they never do anything after thinking about it i'm like well they do sell tires there so we would party right across the street at the big old park. I'm not sure the connection. We would destroy their business, but, you know, they do sell tires. I finally realized they do sell tires there. It's like when you sell tires. People are throwing up and breaking bottles. Well, Exodus shows at Ruthie's were really crazy. I mean, I don't think I ever paid once to get into the show. Wes would be sitting at the door. I would walk by and he'd just kind of go like that. Connie, Pam... Rebecca, Whoa, Leah, girlfriend of Cliff Burton? Yeah. Or mm-hmm. something else. Because there weren't very many. Do you know about her? All. We would go to the bar, we would sit down, we would drink. I've read of her. Eat. They showed her earlier, too. But yeah. it just sort of happened. You know, people were dancing and the bands were playing so hard. It became very human very fast. That's when we found our home because it was kind of where we were from. You know, Rick and Paul were both from Berkeley. You know, Robbie was from Berkeley. Tom and I were from San Pablo. Exodus at Ruthie's Inn, random person would just record it and send it off to our pen pal friend. So, you know, pre-Bond Bless of you. Blood, this is how Thank you. Exodus's music you sneezed in it. the other direction, right? That way. I tried to sneeze right on you, on your face. Is that cool? Where's your mask, it Very dude? quickly became a scene. It's in my butt. It's a place to go. They have great kamikazes. You never knew what was going to happen. Great kamikazes. You know, some crazy shit was going to jump off. Of course, I was young and we were all just raging and it was a party. The place was really dark, and you could kind of like get away with almost anything there. Look how many people they could cram in there. That's yeah. crazy. Banging, going crazy and stuff. And actually, tripped. It reminds me of the inn. There were some people like yeah, yeah the end, yeah. The shows were classic, dude. I mean, it was like Ruthie's Inn, so hot and humid in there. The walls would be sweating. Like people are hanging off of plumbing pipes and sprinklers, <laughs> and toilets were getting broke. The place would just get so beautiful. And I look at that last like image of them packed in, and I just think, oh, COVID. Bridge, Andy, <laughs> yeah, totally. Wear your masks. You know, we'd all take turns. You think places like the end will ball. survive? I don't think, I don't know how. That dude might own that building. Right. Ducking position by the drums and get a, a Look at people just going nuts, like, while they're playing. Oh, yeah. Into the crowd, you know. That was fun. We were hanging out at the Big O across the street. This cat, Toby Rage, comes up, and he sees Leroy with his Mike Toreo hair and his white capizios, and he walks up, and he just goes, shoes. Toby Rage was, again, I never saw him break character. Toby Rage. Toby Rage. Lived at that level. Look at that dude. I just remember just feeling... You know, claustrophobic in there. But if the music was good, that was all that mattered. Exodus just owned it, and the pits were violent as hell. It was just, it, it was, it was, it was, it was glorious. You know, Exodus's group of close friends. You know, they're called the Slay Team, and literally, <laughs> just these cartoons are amazing. I love them. Wearing a Motley Crue or a rat or a hair metal band shirt, they would literally tear the shirt off the <laughs> kid's back. They would cut strips <laughs> off of the shirt and tie them around their wrists like scalps. And those aren't fucking friendship strips. Those oh are gosh. like war trophies. Holy shit. This green, uh, Bailoff's girlfriend actually did a comic book. It was based on the Slay team. And it was just them going out and killing posers, literally. 
Colin and I have this idea that we're going to make such an anti-poser vibe. So it's like when this whole you guys have talked about if you see a shirt in the wild and you're like, name me three songs. Yeah, for sure. Now, if they can't, you just cut the shirt off. Here's why, here's why I wouldn't have survived at Ruthie's. I would have been totally down with all the thrash and all the metal. Unless but then, like, one day I would have come into Ruthie's, like, with a Duran Duran shirt on. Because <laughs> I just really love Duran Duran. Or The Cure. I don't remember what Bob's real name is. Immediate death. He dressed like yeah. this. He had no problem. Shirtless in minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, folks, she's now a nuclear scientist. I research explosives for the government is the, is the party line, but I blow shit up for the government is my line. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Rage, dude, look at him. Nobody He's the guy flying time. in all the photos. Yeah. He's like yeah, the Superman of the thrash you era. Get, you know, Converse footprint on the side of your head. Got off the plane the one day, went to Ruthie's the next day. People were jumping on the PA stack. They were jumping off. <laughs> dude, look at that crowd. guy. People were standing with their backs. These pictures the are I know, unreal. The pictures dude. are amazing. Throwing people on. We had never seen anything like that in Europe. No stage diving for me. Most of the time, I stood just on the outside, let some other guys push the guys in the middle, just close enough so you could still see the band, but not get, you know, yeah, run that, over. That's my vibe. This was insane. <laughs> totally. And we were never real crazy about keeping people off stage. God damn, that's that a killer point. photo no, of Slayer. Yeah, yeah, it really yeah, is. I'm doing it. If you were a poser or a dippy girl or something like that, they could be terrifying. But if you were a friend of theirs and you understood them or you accepted them, their hearts were so big. One of those defining moments is Bonded in by Blood. Any scene where, you know, that was the show that inspired the lyrics to Bonded by Blood. I remember it was us and some rock band playing, right? And the rock band, they were up there rocking out for their sister's band or whatever with their drink glass and left them on the front of stage. And when we come on, everybody started smashing all the glass. So people's hands got cut. So there was literally blood, blood upon the, the stage. stage. There's literally blood all over. And I remember this one girl who was there to see the rock band must have saw something she liked about the band, and she was up front, and she was rocking out. Yeah, this is kind of cool. <laughs> and Paul reached down and got a big smear, a handful of blood, and just wiped it down her face. Jeez. Oh, wow. Ran out, ah, screaming. Bonded I love he says rock band like a band who were derogatory. Yeah, rock like, band. There was some rock. He does not band. mean that in a good yeah. way. Product of the scene. It makes me think of a band like Jed or something. <laughs> He says, the way he talks about it, I would think it would be like the Backstreet Boys. About <laughs> right, yeah. Every years when this whole Bay Area scene was just getting going. Like, you but know, the three of us are like, oh, rock band, cool. Yeah, I mean, that band. sounds cool. That sounds like, awesome. Like the Rolling Stones? <laughs> you mean like Led Zeppelin? Yeah. <laughs> ACDC? Yeah, I mean, the book is... I gotta get this the book. The book is like the pictures necessary. pictures are amazing. Yeah, the book is just crucial. Dave wearing that Accept shirt. Nobody, and I mean nobody. How lucky are we that these dudes took all these photos, man? It's crazy. No joke. Dude, Slayer was no joke. I remember thinking, but this is really interesting. And developed them, and like hung on to them. Yeah, but they're faster than any band I've heard. 
the imagery and the speed and just the heaviness of it all just kind of took me into this fucking Slayer. I feel like Slayer wins the speed metal award for, for sure. sure. Yeah. Man, back with Tom Araya with that early Tom Araya. Yeah. When we went to the Bay Area, that's. I love Jeff Henneman too, wearing that leather jacket. Look at Kerry King doing the fucking porcupine. Yeah, he has the porcupine wrist, that's for sure. He's doing the BDSM tour later. You know, thrashers and metalheads, we were. He was going from doing this to filming the Hellraiser film. Right. Down in Hollywood. Auditioning for Judas Priest. Kids jumping on the stage and then they just start walking on people's heads and shoulders, you know, because everybody was just stuck together. We went up north and we did a show with Exodus, which blew me away. Tom Araya looking and badass. Yeah, he's awesome. Totally. He was the epicenter of the thrash scene, and if your own region was not welcoming of you, we would be. He is like, from LA, what is it, warm, fuzzy, what we did. warm, fuzzy, so heartbeat? Yeah. To hear yeah. He is a sweetheart. Guys, yeah. These guys, they're, they're doing the same thing we are. I have a soft spot for Hanneman. Awesome. Song kind of yeah. lone wolf. He was always like yeah. quiet. The guys were really cool, and we got along great. L.A. was more where the hair metal was going down. I do admit, I, I don't like Kerry King. Can I wear sunglasses during the interview? <laughs> is that cool? Similar to the Bay Area crowd, but the Bay Area He's not very likable, right? Is it just me? He doesn't seem like he'd be friendly. I've heard he's really cool, but he's a hard, it's a hard sell. Hard edge yeah. on him. For sure. Like this guy right here, Brian Liu. Seems like a real sweetheart. No problem. He took all the photos, right? He's one of the two dudes. Yeah. Slayer came up here and played their first three shows in January 84. And the first one was at the Keystone Berkeley. If you look at the back cover of... Dude, I love the Show No Mercy cover. Eyeliner. Why do you wear makeup? (laughs) You can't call it glam, and it wasn't really makeup, but it was eyeliner. Yeah, we call, you know what we call that? Why are you guys wearing that? Eyeliner. And my thought is, I'm not... You know what I call that? Makeup. Flair. But it's... (laughs) Well, you don't need to be wearing that stuff, man. They're all in makeup, and they have, you know, the spandex and all the trip going on, and I think... Carrie might have had spikes at that point. Whether you don't know me, <laughs> there it is. you don't know the guitar, whether you don't know much about Slayer, you know those nails. They had some shit going on, and I was, the fuck is this? People like Andy Anderson and Toby Rage, like the original Slay team, they noticed it. <laughs> Toby Rage. Started a chant of... I love Toby Rage. ...makeup, and you know, Andy even went as far as going to the men's room and getting paper towels, and we waved the paper towels at him. Slayer did two shows. They played the Keystone Berkeley the night before, and then played Ruthie's the following night with Exodus. The Keystone Berkeley show was the last show they wore their makeup because we told them that shit won't wash at Ruthie's Inn. <laughs> <laughs> that was it for me. Took all that shit off. I said, fuck, I don't need that shit. So I just stuck with uh, black shirts and leather pants. By the way, Tom Mariah's yeah, shirt, the it's the ACDC logo, but it says taco. It was a it's awesome. It, is that what I was says, trying to figure says, out? What it, it says fit. taco. That's amazing. That's awesome. They had a hotel room at the Berkeley Plaza Hotel, and we just destroyed that place. It showed up with, like, I think, Tom Hunting. And they, these guys were nailing pizza to the ceiling, man. And, <laughs> you know, jamming everything. Like, nailing the pizza to the <laughs> ceiling. <laughs> that's quite the move, isn't it? Can we not nail something that's, else to the ceiling that's, and eat that's, that? That's, that's quite the protest. It definitely yeah, says taco now that I see it. It's yeah. amazing. So we had two rooms, and they trashed them. Not too many years ago now, Carrie and I were having a conversation and somehow that came up and he's like, yeah, I got in a lot of trouble for that. That was kind of our first introduction into traveling away from home. 
Uh, this documentary is sick, by the way. Yeah. It's awesome. So good. I love it. Mini festival bringing together. And I mean, I wish I would have seen it when it first came out, but I'm I'm glad I waited so we can all watch this together for the first time. I'm glad I waited for us to get these fucking Hawaiian shirts. No joke. I do. I have felt guilty watching this. And I feel like there's long periods of silence because we're just like it's all good, man. enthralled in it. Our heroes. These were our. We're just burning it down. Wes Robinson, who ran. We cannot talk the rest of the time. Do you want? Kind of like the Woodstock moment. No, I'm saying the opposite. People. Listening to this, oh, like, I know, I know. Do what they want to do, but it's just that what they can't and see is that we're you know, nude, make some money and that we're holding hands. Just ha- but, Hawaiian but shirts, Hawaiian yeah. shirts on. Yeah. unbuttoned, of course. But Ethan has his on as a diaper. You always wear it as a diaper. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I had a lot of water before I got here, just in case. You know, that flanks the eighty day on the dirt. Lineup was that guy looks like he's like a possessed in a Weezer cover band. Yeah, tendencies. Suicidal tendencies. Yeah, that's a crossover moment. Like Suicidal was a hardcore band, and yep. they were playing with X's and Slayer, who are metal bands. I know for a fact that the band could not play LA when I first joined the band. And uh, basically, Suicidal Tendencies was banned from Los Angeles. Everyone sort of went like, hey, we're not that different. We love extreme music. We Larry hate glam rock. We hate all the bullshit about, like, you know, poser type shit. It was like kind of a defining moment because everyone who was there were like, wow, like, this is pretty cool. And you can see all the photos. I mean, all those guys were fast friends already. And if wow. not, that solidified it. That was one of the first shows where... Dude, the dude wearing a Kill like, em All shirt. Oh, two of those dudes wearing Kill yeah. Em All shirts. Mike Mirren back the there. In the pictures, too. It was Devo shirt. amazing, <laughs> you know, the spirit up north experiencing that positive energy. And for me, it was all brand new because... Again, I didn't even get a chance to play LA yet, you know, with the with Robert, this band I love you, dude. From LA. Yeah, I love Robert so Trujillo. Awesome. I know. It was furious pit and we had plenty of room. Holy Dirt shit. Ethan? And, uh, <laughs> it was a great show. Because you had a mohawk, right? For the music. I did at one point a few times, yeah. Dave Mustaine began his new band. <laughs> Dave Mustaine was sweating bullets. Is Dave Mustaine actually talking about <laughs> Dave Mustaine? <laughs> well, right that, I wouldn't put it past him. This is Megadeth's first demo that Dave recorded uh, after getting the original Megadeth together. He sent them out to maybe a half dozen fans and people. He hand-wrote the track listing on it. Awesome. Dave had this friend, Brian Lewis. That's my boy. Elfson's one of the sweetest dudes in the world. Fan club. Dude, is that Hetfield with a cigarette? Post office box. That's James Hetfield with a cigarette. Yeah. shows up that says, Hey, Dave, I hope your new shit's faster than Metallica. And that night, I the old Metallica chip to rehearsal yeah. and sped every song up by ten to twenty beats per minute. I mean wow. every song. So things like "Skull Beneath the Skin," "Bullet Belt," "Bullet Belt," yeah. dude. Gun, 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 gun. Kind of the Sabbath groove. All of a sudden, ooh, that double kick is brutal. A little slop. No, it's tight. It's cool. It's still a little sloppy at first. Enough times I can tell you how many, but we've been Paul? enough to uh, where me showing you no would be, you'd be detective. It's going to make you <laughs> think of Slayer too. It was a little loosey goosey. Game playing Metallica. Me and Jeff would both. Fuck you guys, man. Go, I thought it was a Aloha Monday. How's he do that? How's he playing that fucking shit? Not looking at his fingers, and we would just be amazed that he's just up there ripping, looking over there. So I was flattered when Mustaine came calling. There's a lot of crazy folklore about those first couple of days, weeks, and months after I left New York. When I got in the bus, I rode all the way to California, did a lot of soul searching. I had already started writing lyrics 
first lyric I wrote was to the song Set the World Fire, which was called Megadeth. And I saw... You mean Set the Witch on Fire again? Again? From Senator Alan Cranston, and it was a handbill he had put out and said the arsenal of Megadeth can't be ready. He was talking about the nuclear armament. Arsenal of Megadeth, that's a great line. So I wrote it down, put it in song. Didn't think that, you know, that would one day end up being the title. My first show was with Megadeth, and I remember the first time watching Mustaine play, I just couldn't believe it. As a band, that was the first place that we went up there, it was Ruthie's. And that was interesting because uh, Ruthie's was so small, we'd built this crazy stage over at Carrie's house, and I'd ask Carrie if he would help us until we find a permanent player. And we built the stage because I wanted this war scene. So Carrie's in an early incarnation of Megadeth. Right, okay. The roof is about this tall. We're trying to figure out how we're going to get all our stuff in there. It's like, well, shit. And borrowing every marshal in the community. Dude, everything that's, the kiss, that's the kiss way. Yeah. yeah. Bunch of dummy cabs. Jump up in the air. You're going to stick your head in the light. I guarantee those weren't dummy cabs back then. <laughs> they had four speakers in all of them. For real. That is just going to take fucking no prisoners, man. When you watch Dave Mustaine talk percentage of joy that you think is coming radiating from him what's less than zero <laughs> is there a number dude it's like zero percent joy he's got you a were strange in Megadeth, vibe dude he's got what a strange vibe around town is that there are a lot of people posing and primping and wearing their studded wristbands from the shops on hollywood boulevard and everybody looked like vince neal or david lee roth but dave was the real deal even the people talking about him have joy everybody's really surprised <laughs> right. that mustaine got booted out of the band because, I mean, back then he was almost like the front man. He really had something to prove after he left Metallica. It was incredible how quick he got it together. Megadeth is a band that was conceptualized before it was ever a band. It was an architectural blueprint of what the band was going to be. And I think because that was drafted in Dave's apartment and my apartment, we've had this vision of what we've been aiming for. Really creative. It's a great. He still has that BC Rich. Got that Hmm. punk energy. That guitar could be 30 minutes south of us in Franklin. Yeah. Debuted the band in the Bay Area to see that frenzy happening. Kid reached up and actually grabs the string and breaks it off my bass right in the middle of the song. And I'd never seen anything like this. And people were literally like bleeding on the stage from headbanging and thrashing down front. You could feel. He's got like, the tension, you know. He's got like he a, looks like Rambo. <laughs> he does, he's got the bullets. <laughs> They're around his neck. Uh oh, Hetfield. Megadeth, Luke first blood. Meanwhile, January '83, they were gone in April. Did you you got one of your dreads caught in the month <laughs> in the in drums. The recording <laughs> finished, and then they were on tour. So like that Sorry first about year that. that they quote unquote moved to the Bay Area, they were probably only here. A couple months. We really had just come from out of the underground. We recorded Kill 'Em All. We ran back. They're to like, we got to balance out some of that Megadeth flavor with uh, yeah. our core, little sweet and salty. That old Megadeth footage was cool, though. Man. Super cool. Put the scene on the fucking map. Kill 'Em All came out in the summer of '83. You know, and in our second issue, I made the review. You know, we had record reviews. You know, and I made the review. Metallica, they're gonna get a whole yeah, of page. Course. Nobody knew at the time how big they're gonna get, but I said this band is a killer. So I made the headline metal album of the year, Kill 'Em All. Wow. Mm. recorded there. It's all those little tiny breaks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like those tiny things. Totally. 
bonded by it blood. was very organic not like yeah bonded by it's blood. not some machine other than lars writing oh, his own is, well press oh, yeah. right but yeah from that time but even that was organic i mean did you see the what that kind of more anticipated yeah. so to super diy a lot of yeah. Yeah. little pamphlet you know we spent more time with exodus than we did with metallica how dare Basically, you i ended up replacing kirk We've never been in the studio before, so we're, we're learning the process, you know, the whole mic thing and how to keep the guitars in tune, like, because the mic hears everything, and just learning from the very ground up how to record an album. We recorded Bonded by Blood at Prairie Sun Studios. Our friends would come up from the Bay Area and we'd party at night, you know, and they'd get too drunk, there's fist fights. Can we come to the studio and thrash? Dude, that, that place is still around, like, Prairie Sun. Really? Is it really? Yeah. That five kids had not knowing nothing about recording. We got nine songs together, and we just want to put our everything we have into these songs, man, and, and just capture this vibe. It's the craziest thing. The very first note, man, it's just like... I listened to that record today. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty silly. Really? But it's powerful. Like, if you put it in this time... Yeah. Especially with this documentary, like this... Really driving home the context. Right, sure. I mean, some of the lyrics, I mean, did, didn't really age well. It's like, bang your head against the stage. But the lyrics didn't age well on Kill Em All either. Totally. No laugh till leather. It's kind of the same deal. It captured We're to kick some ass tonight. That youthful angst and anger. That was thrash metal. That was a Bay Area thrash metal record, you know. So, you know, Kill Em All, Bonded by Blood. James's style is just effortless. They're twins. A lot of confidence. People are just like, man, Bonded by Blood, forget about it. There's quite a few covers from that period of time where you kind of look at them and you're like, wow, really? But it's pretty rough. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a rough album was cover. That was <laughs> why? It's why, Siamese whatever twins. Whatever do you mean? Siamese here, twins, and one of them's evil, one of them's good. It's like, it's just the thrash metal cover of Balance. <laughs> it is like Balance. <laughs> like Van Halen. It really is. Dude, that is so funny. Dude, that, have you looked at that cover in the last like 10 years? It makes me smile. Take it in, dude. All right. Take, take it, it in. Take a night. Yeah. Draw a bath and. Epitome of what a singer should be, because if you aren't into it, except he couldn't sing, right? <laughs> He'd go on one of those rants about killing posers on stage, and if there were posers in the crowd, they worried. My grandmother makes more noise than that. <laughs> My grandma can make more noise than this, and she's dead. That's killer. Guys would be there, and Paul would kick people out. One of the prerequisites to getting into the party was you had to bring a two by four so you could destroy the place. And I remember <laughs> grabbing a beer bottle, just firing it straight at the fireplace right when we walked in, and we just it just erupted. He kind of got away with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Look at his face. To be honest, <laughs> we handcuffed someone to a tree like this. <laughs> He let a live sewer rat loose in my house one time. We'd cut people's hair. If you had... Let's face it, uh, a lot of cancelable actions today. Yes. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> He'd strip you right where you stood. Canceled. Slice that shirt up. We'll slice you with it. Canceled. That's all Canceled. he did. They were lucky. Canceled. I remember his place. He lived in a... just a, like a, He lived on a concrete slab. <laughs> his wolf with him, Bytor. Bytor and Paul were pretty much in Bytor? Bytor and the snow dogs? Oh, my gosh. So that's what it's about, Ethan. It all comes around. Oh, my gosh. Liquor. Finally. Just getting smashed. Walls it's good to know the truth. Holes. Just slamming our arms down the hallways, just punching in all the plaster. <laughs> yeah, no posers. Houses dismantled, you know, piece by piece. Wow. Yeah. Me with my Duran Duran shirt. Uh-oh. Bailoff passed away. No chance. <laughs> no chance. 2002. 
he is beloved by his friends and metal fans. Yeah, everywhere. I was reading that today. Yeah, he passed away. Man. Paul, for what he lacked in pure musical talent, he had all the drive and the passion that you could ever want. Could we have done more to keep him around? Probably, yeah, might have been a failure in attempting it. I'm happy I got a million memories and five billion photographs worth of fucking awesome times to look back on. He's like the greatest thrash metal front man of all time, and he made one album twice. <laughs> <laughs> what a soundbite. We're all by his bedside in the hospital, and... Rick 42, man. That's you know? young, crazy. Dude, I'm going to be 42 next year. So young. I'm going to be 42 in about two weeks. You guys are super old. I know. I'm only 37. Legend. I miss him every day. See you, buddy. In the mid-1980s, Lars and James lived at the infamous Metallica Mansion. In yeah, Ocari. they did. Hell yeah. Yes. The Metallica Mansion. And that is certainly not... One of our cars right there. <laughs> Porsche was not parked there because of us. But at least with the Metallica Mansion, it was literally almost a straight shot back from Ruthie's Inn. So like if there was a show or whatever at Ruthie's Inn, it was straight shot almost down San Pablo Avenue back to their house. Definitely a bachelor pad. Good old Carlson house. Into the bedrooms at all. The front rooms covered with posters and beer bottles. I remember pulling all the furniture out the front door right here and hosting this party. We left the turntable and maybe a couple chairs, maybe a couch, and uh, obviously the booze. <laughs> How about that for throwing a party? So you just take all your furniture out for the party. Put it in the front yard. <laughs> and have these crazy mosh pits in the house. Usually we're out partying in the streets or whatnot, so to actually have a place Are to Are they go, playing like filter the in the back? Cool. What is yeah, this? It sounds like Cliff with the boogie, the Mesa boogie shirt. The Metallica house, I think Exodus were there more than Metallica, you know? Because they were already on tour constantly. While touring, lonely Metallica members while touring keep in touch with the scene back home. Ah, <laughs> yeah, postcards, letters—that was the only way you could keep in contact. Well, we'd get into a town and you know write down what's happening and and just send it off. All those early Ruthie's in shows that were kind of laying the foundation for the Bay Area scene were happening. Hey, John, how you doing? We're you know we're jamming and playing and. Okay, we're gonna go out and go party, go drinking, and then you flip. Think it about over. this with with John Marshall. Hey, John, it's true. I'm, <clears throat> he played all the Hetfield stuff, drunk, rhythm, right? Yeah, twice. Yeah, yeah. That you got to be damn good to do that. Yep. Oh yeah. Lars Ulrich, drummer in parentheses. In hindsight, it was probably them dealing with all the shit that was happening with them. You know, they were going to a next level, thousands of miles away from home. Being away from home, being away from your friends, being a, away from your girlfriend. It was a big deal. And they liked to write letters. You know, back then we all wrote letters. Flying the flag for the Bay Area and San Francisco on the scene, so it was important for us to um, stay in touch with everybody wow. that was back at home holding the fort. See if you know this one. What's y'all screaming back at me? This was the title Sick and Destroyed! Damn. I've always loved that they do that intro together. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you think, Paul, that Kirk would come in after, like, the second yeah, totally. measure? Totally. Cliff would write me really long letters from Copenhagen in his horrible writing. Scribble, scrabble. Talk about how good things were going. This tour is great. 
first archer festival I'd called Lars if he wanted to open up for my festival because uh, I thought it was a great band and uh, I just you know sent him money for playing tickets and stuff. He's Definitely got a hardwired box set, the deluxe hardwired. Oh, nice. <laughs> Did you see that? I love that you picked that out in like a two-second <laughs> clip. We all knew. Some old black and white pictures of Metallica at that show. They were so Look, nervous see it? there. Yeah, there it is. Around that time to do the show. Even though he, he has the original away. pressing of uh, <laughs> Electric Ladyland. It's actually a test pressing. People away just like they did when they started here. <laughs> you, saw, you saw that quick photo? It had James playing the Jackson V. You can watch the, this Metal Hammer Festival gig. You can see this whole show on YouTube. Yeah, it's pretty fun to watch. Look how blown out everything is. Lars said, no, we didn't have the cover. It was just Kirk on there. Things were being copied the next day, and they were sent to Germany, Belgium, France, all over the world. It wasn't really until James started getting some European shows under his belt in the spring of 1984, where he started being able to sort of command the big European crowds. That's when he became James Hetfield, the front man. This was certainly. It's awesome to see him work it like that. Yeah, for sure. This was the kid that finally found his voice and got to there you go, Paul. be in a band that was able to help express it for him. We were very aware there was something brewing in San Francisco that was a little heavier, a little angrier. There's Stefan. Uh, Exodus, you know, were definitely part He of was that. there at the beginning, Blown dude. by what he saw in the Bay Area, Andre Verheisen booked Exodus Sorry. into the Sorry. The, the guys are the show taking a tequila break. Pardon me. Spread by numerous bootlegs. I don't think I can do tequila. I'm, I'm going to sip this real slow. We're here because of that was Exodus' first tour in Europe. The only club show they did was at the Dynamo. They did 300, 350 people by themselves. More people in there than I think officially were allowed, maybe three times as much. Because everybody <laughs> wanted to see those bands. And the wow. Dynamo club was Gary Holt's wearing a shirt that says Satan. <laughs> All of his shirts kind of have that vibe. Yeah, they do. <laughs> He's consistent, I guess. Man, it would have been so fun to see Exodus in a club. Yeah. Shoot, man, any of these bands back then. Yeah, totally. Even Megadeth. Yeah. From my pen pals, uh, Brian Lou and Andy Airborne Anderson, who was very close with Exodus, uh, I got some live tapes, you know, and we were fascinated. They were even faster than Metallica. They were even a little bit more intense. Word got out. Mm. And word by mouth mm. is the strongest okay. promotion that you can get. While Metallica were away touring, Pam and Connie were house-sitting the mansion. We had sort of screwed up their finances along the way. We weren't very good at balancing checkbooks. Mark had just left a checkbook and... Uh, he left a checkbook that was signed with checks, and we were just supposed to deposit money and then give them the checks. I had to go to my very conservative Republican mom and dad and ask for them to bail out Metallica, so I like to say that... <laughs> My mom, Mike and Carol Bryant, sort of saved the Metallica pad. Sorry, guys. So there you go. It all worked um, out. It it's all okay. worked out. Yeah. New bands were rising everywhere in the Bay Area, inspired by the scene they were living in. Bands like Testament, Death Angel. I love the Lion, Testament logo. For mm -hmm. It's a good one. Zest all made their mark on the metal scene. Each year, there'd be a band that would kind of step 
up into the role of being able to headline a show at, say, Ruthie's or The Stone. Metallica came out with Kill 'Em All, and they were doing the Kill 'Em All for One tour. We stood right on the edge of the pit, and we headbanged for the entire fucking show when it was Cliff Burton, and he's doing anesthesia, pulling teeth, and they're like, these guys are fucking amazing. And the whole way home, it was like, we're gonna start a band, we're gonna start playing shows, we're gonna play thrash. I love that. All those people yeah. would be going to the shows at Ruthie's and, and the Bay Area clubs and stuff, and um, basically they kind of looked up on stage and said, I could do that. He's got Alfred yeah, Newman tattooed on his arm. The Beatles on Ed <laughs> That's awesome. What is that? And Mad, Mad Magazine. Magazine. Guitar oh. right after they saw that. That was my Beatles Ed Sullivan moment. But if we wanted to be something, if we wanted to matter, we had to get into Ruthie's. And if we could survive Ruthie's, he seems like such a cool dude. Not get yeah. killed. Oh, I've always loved him. Man. Boot yeah. off the stage and not get the mic ripped down in front of it like people were prone to do, and survive the Slay team, then that would be the ultimate. Look at what was Tony? Tony what? You can't Tony tell fly the story to the air. Of the uh, Tony Danger. T Tony Riot. Tony Danger. No. Tony, Tony Rage. Rage. She managed one of the most hardcore bands. If he doesn't kill you, the then you make it to the next level. Yeah. Right. Super satanic speed metal. This is Metal Mom right here. I know there's a few Metal Moms across the globe, but this was ours. I broke my leg at a DRI show. She basically nursed me back to health at her house. She was the mom of the scene. You know, every show, she'd be there for every band. She lived at a house in Pinole, and after parties would be at her house. She really saw everybody in that scene as human, whereas there was a lot of demonization of, you know, the, you know, the youth. She knew that we needed a, a safe place. And Debbie Bono's house was always a safe place. That's so cool. Last a couple of days. Last a couple of days. Sometimes I would be going to school the next day, walking through the people who were still hanging out at my house. They all knew wow. that Debbie would take care of them if mm -hmm. they didn't have anywhere to go. The word of mouth kind of got because you go, hey, I need this or I need that for my band, and my mom would go out and get it for you. For me personally, she helped me a ton. I started taking guitar lessons from Joe Satriani. I couldn't afford it. She paid for it. And I, you know, couldn't thank her enough. There's no way I'd be anywhere I was right now without Debbie. So, He's still in promise, you know, right? totally grateful yeah. for yeah, yeah. everything she did. He's a PRS a dude, 16-year-old right? Larry Lalonde. He's a uh, yes. 10th grader he, he, in high school. He has played those, yeah. yeah. And they have a record out. You know, imagine being a 10th grader, and you have an actual album, and you're playing in clubs I remember kind of showing up at high school and going like, hey, I've got a record. I was doing like, that in high school. Like, no big deal. Like, MAD, man. Hot shit now. <laughs> and then she'd get... I don't have to imagine it. Constantly. I lived it. She'd get hundreds of them from other bands wanting her to manage them. Really looked out for everybody, you know? And when she managed Forbidden, she, she would go on tour. I think she was 57 years old when she was doing this. Wow. I mean, just going out on tour in a van for two months across America at 57 years old. And I'm like... It's fucking crazy. And it's everything that the horrors probably that you've heard. <laughs> she put up with a lot of shenanigans from us, you know. Uh, one time, I guess they had had like a porno magazine in the back of the, in the, back of the van, and they had uh, taped a bunch of the pictures to the inside windows of the van. Who's that going into the I know. And here's his grandma, up? you know, this, this older lady. It looked like Cheech Marin. Yeah, it did. Obscene pictures on the windows. She couldn't believe we'd do that stuff. I'll tell you what I'm doing tonight for sure is listening to Possessed. Possessed, yeah. 
That this is right up my alley, dude. Look at this photo shoot. Yeah, I know. I always considered us the third wave of thrash. So it was like Metallica Slayer Exodus was the first wave, mm -hmm. and then Testament, Death Angel, Violence yep. Forbidden. I started auditioning and just went from band to band to band to band to band, and, you know, finally... Call Bostaff's a bad motherfucker, dude. A yeah. man that young could get a show at Ruthie's Inn, and no one would bat an eye. We're hanging out at, like, Ruthie's Inn, The Stone. We're not supposed to be there because we're... 14. My first show ever was 14. November 24, 1984, wow. Megadeth, Death Angel. When they were loading in, you know, we were making fun of them. Like, you know, like your mom's driving you to show. Then we'd get all pissed off. Like, wow, they refer to us as just so young and stuff. They're just focusing on the fact that we're young. It was hard to put a band together, especially if you were 15. I also knew that if I can just get through one show, it'll be a positive experience. I need to do this. Alex's history, I'm sure he told you, you know, he's 15 and didn't have a teenage year as he wow. toured the whole time, you know, from the first record to the fifth record. We did a record every year and toured every year, five records, five years. Possessed is credited with starting the death metal genre. You know, the whole satanic theme was kind of funny. I don't think anyone was actually into Satan. It just freaked people out. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll be listening to Possessed tonight for sure. Yeah? Yeah. In August 1985, Metallica played Bill Graham's legendary Day on the Green. Yeah. It's a huge moment. Look at that Scorpions, Scorpions fucking backdrop, dude. Yeah. Wow. Metallica stole the show. Get it? It's a I Scorpion. It was made insane. of metal. Did we all come here to kick some fucking ass or what? The fact that Metallica got a chance to play at Donington and then two weeks later at Day on the Green was just a total mind fuck. Me, what I remember is going in there kind of cold, not really knowing what's going on, but blown away at the consumer satisfaction. The audience had so firmly I don't like the way this guy talks, man. The consumer satisfaction. Consumer The impressions were quite good for our portfolios. I could tell that these It wasn't sonically bankrupt. <laughs> we were selling lots of Coca-Colas. Swept up in it. With most the of amount of Coca-Cola sold during Metallica's set. And uh, don't get me started on Frankfurters. Our portfolios <laughs> were staggering that eve. Here we go. But then there's this, dude. Cliff had a very serious attack. Hendrix of bass. Look at his right hand. Very abrasive. There was a lot of power in it. So it was almost like this punk attitude coming out of his fingertips. And yet, he was very graceful with this connection to classical music. Tone for days. I mean, shit, dude. That like, tone is sick. Bass players like bending well. strings like that. Like, no one really does that. Who does that? Honey, please. Honey. Maybe less Claypool. Who, who almost was in Metallica? Almost was, or maybe. Honey, I heard he auditioned. I heard he was late. I heard he made it to the audition. Never would have worked out. He said, "Do you want to play some Isley Brothers tunes?" And I thought that would be a great idea. I love the Isley Brothers. Great. Metallica logo. I've had the time of Lucius's life. Sitting next to things like Rat Poison, and I got berated by a couple overweight ladies in spandex. Hey, you know, leave me out of it. Out <laughs> hey, that's what you're talking about. I'm not a lady. As soon as they got on stage, it was the stone in the pond. Concentric circles of violence spread throughout. I remember standing there, stage left, and going, there's Metallica, 
and there's 60,000 people, and it's 1985. It's like, yeah, this is really cool. Unbelievable, man. Jeez. Here's the deal, man. You step out in front of a crowd that big, you're feeling pretty good if you got a song like For Whom the Bell Tolls to play. Yeah, or yeah. Creeping Death. Yeah, you're, you're going to do just fine. Your mosh pit. So for the both of us... And time marches on. Time marches on. You go on. <laughs> it's like when time marches on. It only marches on when you roll. It's kind of like when you make your fight on the hill in the early day. Especially for Cliff. Bands that can wear their own t-shirt in their own concert. Yeah. Go. Pantera. Metallica. Anthrax, a lot would do that too. A lot of metal bands. Yeah. It's more, Guns and Roses. it's more accepted in metal. Guns sure. and Roses? Axl Rose had a big-ass, like, white leather jacket with the fucking logo on the back in the Paradise City video. That's different you know, than a concert tee. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's even worse. That's, like, that's insane merch. Yeah. You know, you're supposed to trash shit, you know? So we did. We just... Oh, yeah, they trashed the room that day. I called the Metallica house and James. Oh, dude, this is when the promoter. And I was like, where? The promoter basically had no clue that dresses James down about this. Another day after ours, you know, another band has to use your trailer. You're going to have to go over there and talk to Bill. I was like, oh shit. It's like I'm being called in. He sat me down and he said, hey, I know you're a rock and roll band at heart and, you know, breaking shit, destroying things, you know, might be fun for a little bit. What would you do if. People came in your home and behaved this way. And James uh, they goes, do. well, pretty much they do every week. <laughs> I didn't quite get what he was trying to say. Eraserhead. Yeah, said, it's pretty you guys dope. Are talented, and you're on a path of destruction. He knew. He said, I've had the same talk with Sid Vicious and with Keith Moon, and they didn't listen. Maybe you'll listen. Wow. Maybe not. What really happened was James totally manned up. And Bill completely respected it. So I said, you know, I'm young, I'm stupid, and thanks for that. I love that photo from the toilet. I appreciate the talk, and I'll do my best. Years later, he would go to me, how's James? <laughs> well, you know, I haven't really talked to him lately, but I'm sure he's fine. To this day, I still never said thank you to him, because it did enlighten me a little bit. He made it right to the best of his ability. The next time we came back to play, they, they put a bunch of like. Area, he put yeah, this queen clear plastic over everything. <laughs> the ceiling, the like a guar show, floor, totally, <laughs> or a Gallagher show. Wrapped bottles of Gallagher, so, dude. <laughs> Gallagher, it would be protected. 1986 was an ear-shattering year for thrash metal. Yep, Metallica, sure was. Megadeth, and Slayer, followed by Anthrax. All released landmark album. Long the living, bro. Uh, Cry for the Indian. Where this was taken. Oh. And he says, I'm pretty sure it's in Copenhagen. Was he like baking or something? I he's wearing guess like he a, was making some food. I remember him, them posting a, a, like a Christmas greeting to all the Cliff Burton fans, and he was and in his apron. Like he was just, just baking like something for Christmas or whatever. He had a little amp and his white guitar, and it looked like a Gibson, but it wasn't. And he would play. He could not wait to get on the road. And Cliff was excited. I'm telling you, man, Cliff, Cliff looks so different in different photos. I know. You guys ever notice that? Yeah, really he does, yeah. We were going to live together. So he wanted me to kind of look at houses just around in the East Bay. 
On September 26, 1986, Metallica played a show in Stockholm, Sweden, supported by their friends Anthrax. Anthrax went on ahead to the next show. Metallica never made it. In the early hours of September 27th, their tour bus crashed and Cliff Burton was killed. He was 24 years old. Jeez. Oh, man. I went home and started calling Cliff in Sweden at the hotel. I had the itinerary. Oh, no, they haven't checked in yet. OK, um, Great photo. that's weird. Try again an hour later. That's when she told me. And I, it just, it, it wasn't even real. It wasn't possible. So I immediately called Cliff's parents. Oh, wow, so she found out else, before they did. You know, wanted to be with his parents and smell his things. We don't sit back and, and say, oh, I, I hope we're big next year, or I hope this, I hope that. We just go and do it and don't put a lot of thought into what might happen or what could happen. We try not to think too much about the future. Cliff was such a character, and he was with us for that short amount of time. Thank God there were some people filming, and there were friends around that had cameras to respect that time greatly. I am so glad that he was in my life and I got to share, share some times with him. Someone so close and someone who I saw my future with. And it was, it was awful. Oh, it was man. just awful. Jeez. Most of us were, were so young back then that we, uh, we really hadn't dealt with death before. Hmm. The first thing I did, I got up it's a real and thing. I headed out to the vault yeah. mm -hmm. because I was working the next day at the store. From the minute that we opened the door, it was a constant flood of people coming in. It was the place where people came to grieve. It was the place where people came to reflect and tell stories. And it was almost the perfect place to find out because it was home for all of the scene, also for him and those guys. What made us survive it was that community of those those thrashers. No one ever thought about the perils of rock and roll or the fact that tour buses crash and, you know, people die out there doing what we were all aspiring to do and doing what he ultimately loved. I know we felt bad, but I couldn't only imagine what each one of them personally felt. Yeah, it's a terrible time. Terrible thing. What I know about Cliff was that he was a very gentle soul, and we laughed, and we would laugh. You can't ask more from your kids, particularly when you uh, you don't have to um, say much to them. That, that they uh, Cliff would just decide he knew on his own what was right and what was wrong, and he. Uh, practice it just like he practices music <laughs> gosh man yeah it's so cool it's got to be hard for someone like james People to have to constantly Why talk about that? that it's because yeah. think back to those days when you guys were in a but probably nice too room Nothing yeah but i'm yeah. just thinking about when but they said it was our first time dealing with death yeah for. like 
I've dealt with death. We're just the guys. There's some stuff that's like, I'm so glad it's in the past. Yeah, Yeah, totally. But it's never in the past for James. It'd be weird if you had to talk about it all the time. Every interview. Right. See what it sounds like. You know, or most of them. Write and record some music together. The marching orders for that record, though, is we're writing a thrash metal record. And obviously, Alex is involved with that scene. We're getting Mark Asagato, Gary Holt, and Chuck Billy. We're getting the Bay Area's best. You would hope this happens everywhere. But we're like, you know, do you think it does? Like, no, it's the Bay Area. No, His best is affliction. Some special people that are backing each other. I'm hoping it's not connected to the I think it's a brand. different, different <laughs> affliction. <laughs> jams with people, you know? And I got approached, I'm like, absolutely, please. I still got a bitchin' voice. Yeah. How do you, how do you sing like that through the years? Dude. Talent. And taking care of your voice. Yeah. Right. And maybe making, I don't know, maybe making a couple of deals with the devil. Members, Dickinson's, you know. He still crushes it. Still sounds great. Inspiring metal fans everywhere to crank it up. I love these cartoons. We've yeah, they're like so times, good, but. dude. Everyone out there should watch this because it's it's really well done. Well, hopefully they just watched it with us. Yeah. Okay, is that how it works? They're yeah. synced Hope- up? Well, hopefully. In 2013, Gary Holt replaced the late, great Jeff Hanneman in Slayer. It's kind of weird, you know? It's like I got the call from Carrie to help them out, you know? People have don't know the background between the two bands will ask me, wow, how's it feel to be playing with such metal legends? They're my buddies. I think metal fans are the most devoted of any fans there are. They're not fickle. They like what they like. And I think Slayer fan is that fan times 10. I think his back, his spine's like starting to curve from those chains, dude. <laughs> yeah. You see it? He's kind of hunched over. Admiration for the band. You hear stories about some of these people that uh, your music made me strong and helped me together to get past a certain point in my life. I'm very grateful for that. You give me all teary eyes. <laughs> you sweet taco. He's such a sweetheart. His smile and his laugh make me so happy. I'm not kidding, man. Yeah. When Tom Mariah laughs, he's just got a great laugh. Hey, and smile man. Around his smile and laugh making you happy makes me happy. Sure. This community has a way of taking care of its own. I'm honored that the fans still like what we're doing. It's great to hear. Feels good. Yo sabía que la mejor audiencia para Metallica es en es la mexicana aquí en México y más los chilangos. Was that Hulk Hogan? Like the wrestlers. 
when we put out our Instagram. Rob is ripped, we're dude. Like yeah. Teenagers yeah. Good shape. We have a good time. We joke around. There's a son. Yeah. Everything we do revolves he's, around. He's the a badass bass player yeah, already. Seems really? To be a certain oh yeah. He sat in with Corn. That's very. Oh, that's right. Corn. Yeah. How did that happen? What's his name? Uh, Tay. Tay. Ty. Ty. They tapped him. They needed someone. It's a massive, critical, and commercial. Occurrence. Rob went out on tour with him. We super grateful. He did like he did like ten festival dates like, or something. He was like thirteen at the time, right? City right here, playing in front of sixty to seventy thousand people in one show. It blows my mind. That Brian dude from Corn lives in town. Yeah, I bet you could get him yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, maybe still around and still playing. Games. Can you like summon the dreadlock? Whatever can you think. Well, you know, are you on a dreadlock? He was there when we saw him. He was at Bridgestone. Yeah, it wasn't for Cliff. We walked out. You know, those early there was like records. You know, I wouldn't. Ten of us for sure. Yeah. walked out from backstage and everybody was looking down and they were going corn yeah they looking thought, at him yeah. and then they looked at me and they went corn yeah kind of i don't know you know i did the mike huckabee i did some tv on the mike huckabee show and he was on the mike huckabee show i heard that yeah all over the world unbelievable take it there and share mike huckabee played bass How sorry guys i'm watching that? rob Trader play bass it was right odd now. it was a strange <laughs> thing you guys keep talking about mike huckabee sorry. when i watch rob Trader play bass <laughs> pretty much the same i would think on a on a skill level, yes. I love when Rob does the the gray pants and the black shirt vibe. Yeah, yeah. We're sitting in. I like the braids, man. Yeah. Having a conversation about the East Bay days. Obviously, nobody at that time would ever slow down long enough to believe that the music could have and the scene could have that kind of impact and that kind of longevity. There's a shirt that says, I think, for albums and still no ballad. And they meant that. Love that. Until Ride the Lightning. They're still my friends. Right. They're like my brothers. Oh, wait, they're talking about... Uh, that was Exodus. Exodus, just yeah. The, the Exodus, not the four thrash albums. Sorry. Right, right. We loved, you know, and... We but that was the deal back in the 80s, man. Oh, yeah. you got to have and the ballad. Oh, yeah. Two cents well, that was more common for glam rock. Absolutely. That was always the hit. For well, I saw... There well, was any a, band. I mean, Dream On with Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, right. Any rock band. Stairway a, to Heaven. Impact. Uh, an Unplugged with Def Leppard. And they were taking time. questions from the audience. And someone said, do you... Do you still See, like the ballads? And Joe Elliott said, the was. "If the ballad it is was, the gasoline, was, was the big fuel tank attached to the, the like uh, rocket ship, years ago and, shit. Yeah. and then the ballad yeah, falls more. off, nice and then the rocket ship, ship keeps going." <laughs> yeah, right. He's like, "That's it what ballads you up there, yeah. 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 yeah." And I thought that was a really good explanation of it. And we the first Maiden album. Our friend bought Iron Maiden one just because of the cover and like. It was so fresh and new back then. A lot of people thought Running Free was an Exodus original for a little while. And we're like, no, nope, sorry. Can't take credit for that one. <laughs> yeah, Prowler. All that. Like, I love that song, Prowler. And Kirk, song Kirk used to sing Another Piece of Meat by the Scorpions. That was in my high school band room back when I still went to school. It was a perfect storm of all the people that we needed to form a long-lasting musical scene that went on to do great things. And the amazing thing about it is we were all young, innocent, and didn't know what the fuck we were doing or where it all was going. It just happened. It was like, it was like from, from heaven. Oh, I think, Car- I think uh, awesome. getting choked life. up. I think Kurt gets the MVP of interviewees. For sure, for sure. And Gary Holt, man, for real. Yeah, Gary Holt crushed it too. 
Cliff oh, and for Paul. Paul, man. You know, Paul? I was telling somebody Paul? this morning. For Cliff Burton and Paul Moak. No, no, Kirk Hammett <laughs> from Metallica when he was a member of our band, Exodus. We played here when we were 16 No, years you old. guys are Exodus. Yeah. I've been a fan forever. That is so <laughs> awesome. Oh, yeah, so much a fan you didn't recognize them, Exodus huh? Exodus continue to play on around the world. And still, here's no the deal. Fucking ballads. <laughs> Would Exodus still be around if Metallica hadn't been Metallica? That's the question. They might still be around, but do you think they have any kind of like have had any kind of longevity? Because once Metallica blew up, well, Kirk Hammett used to be in that band. What one hundred percent? But what happened to Trauma though? Did they even do anything? Good point. I think they just disbanded. What happened to Leather Charm? They definitely disbanded. There's no Metallica. Dude, that's a great point, actually. So maybe Exodus is a great band, but and they would have had a career. Yeah. But it was extended or blown up a little bit because of Metallica. I, I mean, I think maybe more, maybe more national or international attention was brought onto them because of the Kirk Hammett connection. Because they clearly, based off their career and in, in this documentary, they made a name for themselves in the Bay Area and, yeah. be- and became like the dudes in I mean, when Talc was on tour they were the band in the Bay Area. but I think it's I think it's a different door I think I think Metallica just opened the door yeah so Metallica sure, yeah. made a, a career in making these records viable whether there or not they go. were sort of piggybacking off Metallica's name necessarily Metallica created a market yeah, yeah. a global market for, for this sure. stuff now, if Exodus would have written a damn ballad, they would have gone Because then even when Metallica... Because <laughs> then think about it. when Even when Metallica kind of started to veer off into making videos or maybe Black Album, you had a lot of people that wanted to just hear that thrash shit. You got a band like Exodus can fill that slot. Yeah, for sure. No ballads. Still yeah. no ballads. 30, yeah. 35,000 years later, still no ballads. <laughs> right. <laughs> well... Man, this was awesome amazing. documentary. Awesome what a documentary. great documentary, man! Everyone involved in this, Jesus, yeah. good job. Any uh, any final thoughts, or should we should we just split? It's been a long night. It's been a long night. We've I, had I a mean, good time. I already want to watch that again. Should we just yeah, watch it again? Just and keep do it recording again. Sure. right now. All right, Paul, go restart the DVD. Okay. Let's Here do I it. go. <laughs> well, look, write in Metal Podcast Show at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, and uh, you can uh, support us easily by telling your buddies about the show, following us on social media leaving the iTunes review. And if you really like the show, for the price of two cups of shitty coffee a month. <laughs> two <laughs> cups of pilot coffee a month. Yeah. You can be a part of what keeps the show cool. And by cool, I mean we gave away an S&M 2 vinyl. Mm-hmm. We gave away some Squindo posters. We what else? Have we, we've given away a ton of shit. We've given, we've given away uh, all sorts of things. The Squindo <laughs> episode was really great. The dude is so cool. Oh, yeah. You would nice. love that guy. He's, I, I love right listening to the episode. Real cool, dude. Yeah, they're gonna come to Nashville and visit when the world opens back up. Yeah. When's that? A, when's that gonna happen? happen? Uh, sometime in twenty twenty nine. Yeah, Bruh. we said that we said that uh, they could stay at Smokestack. Hey, they're gonna crash here. Done as long as they have masks. <laughs> well, it was good to see you both. Yeah, you too. Aloha. We'll do this again soon. We love you out there in Metal Up Your Podcast Land. Any parting words? My last parting word is uh, let's go to fucking Hawaii, Paul. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> well, you're gonna have to say it again because now we're gonna say peace. Adios. Oh, I get how it works. Thank you. <laughs> if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs> <laughs>